We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. The Buffalo Bills, again the AFC's best team, make their second straight Super Bowl appearance. Loaded with all sorts of offensive weaponry. The Hogs are the heart and soul of the Washington Redskins, paving the way for football's highest scoring team. It's a dream matchup, the two best teams in football on a day made for dreams. Everything that's been said, these two teams remain to each other at least somewhat of a mystery, and I think that's pretty good, don't you? Uh, I think it's it's very good. I like the purity of it. You know that all year you could see this match coming, like a collision course. The Buffalo Bills were the best team in the AFC. They had the best record. They were the best all year. The Washington Redskins were the best team in the NFC. And, you know, I kind of like the fact that they didn't play each other. Where you can say, well just a month ago this happened so i think this is going to happen they didn't play each other and you know we don't know the fans don't know the press doesn't know the players and coaches don't even know as joe gibbs said yesterday he said we could kill them they could kill us or it could be a tight one 30 years ago today that's how it sounded on cbs's coverage of super bowl 26 pat summerall and john madden from the metrodome in minneapolis as washington the nfc champion got ready to face Buffalo. Uh, Redskins Bills Super Bowl 26 30 years ago today will be 95% of this show today on this Wednesday, January 26th, 2022. Uh, joining me on the show today will be Brad Edwards. Brad, of course, uh, the starting free safety on the 91 team, the runner up MVP 
of that game uh, to Mark Rippon in 1991. Joe Jacoby will be a guest on the show uh, with me today. And then Aaron Schatz will finish it up with us today. Aaron is the creator of the DVOA metric that I refer to uh, often from Football Outsiders. He's the founder of Football Outsiders. Uh, they have ranked consistently over the years the 1991 Redskins as the greatest team um, of all time in the era in which they've been measuring teams. He will join us at the end of the show, and we'll find out why the 91 skins are so highly thought of. Um, they're not the only one. Uh, Fox Sports and others, USA Today and others, have ranked the 90, uh, 1991 Redskins as, if not the greatest Super Bowl winner of all time, certainly one of the top Super Bowl winners and top teams of all time. So that is the show today. Um we don't get a chance to do this that often, and I know that I am a memory lane guy, maybe uh, more so than some of you want, but um, I will promise you this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing the comparative, you know, the 91 team and that era of Joe Gibbs's and Jack Ken Cook's and Charlie Casserly's and Bobby Bethard's Redskins to what's happened to this franchise over the last 22 years. This is not about what's uh, current, uh, but it's about uh, honoring uh, a past great championship team. Who knew 30 years ago that would be it? <laughs> I certainly didn't. Nobody that had lived through that era of four Super Bowls in 12 years, three Lombardi trophies, consistently being one of the teams to beat in an era of great NFC teams in the division, the Cowboys and the Giants, and the Eagles were certainly on the come. Uh, in the NFC in general, the Bears and the 49ers specifically. What a great era it was. Um, and Washington's greatness during that era followed an era of George Allen from 1971 um, through the end of the 70s that had started the ball rolling on Washington's football team, the Redskins, being one of the premier fa franchises in the sport, uh, one of the most respected franchises in the sport, and one of the biggest winners um, in the sport. Um yeah, I don't think, you know, in 1991, after a 20-year run of being totally relevant, that anybody uh, could have anticipated what the next 30 years would be like. But again, nothing really today on today's show about the current state of affairs. Now, before we get into what happened 30 years ago today, uh, I am going to just mention um, the other uh, sporting event from last night that I wanted to discuss, which was the Wizards' collapse against the Clippers. If you don't know at this point, it's the second biggest collapse of what they call the play-by-play -play era. 35-point um, lead lost uh, to the uh, L.A. Clippers in a 116-115 to defeat at Capital One Arena. The Wizards led 66-31 to um, late in the second period, had a 30-point halftime lead, 66-36, to and got outscored 80-49 to in the second half. You know, you really don't have to go very far to describe it to somebody who didn't see it. Because when you give up 80 points and a half uh, and blow a 30-point lead, it's defense. All right? Keep it simple, stupid. It's defense. And it was. 
because the defense was horrendous. Um, it was Matador. Whatever you want to do, Olay, I've got your lane directly to the rim, and there's nobody there to resist you except for this piece of red cloth. That was it. It was terrible to watch. There were so many instances in which they didn't even get back on defense. It seemed to be a layup drill, whether it was a made shot on the Wizards' end or a missed shot. Many times it was an and one, it seemed like, because the one guy left with, would foul the guy as he was on the way to the rim. It was pathetic. It was an absolute embarrassment defensively by a team that got absolutely throttled in their last game by the Celtics, uh, 116-87 to, uh, to 87 on Sunday, a 29-point loss, giving up 51, by the way, uh, to Jason Tatum in a game in which I think the Celtics made nearly 50% of their threes. You know, Washington... With that loss, a devastating loss, one of the worst losses really in franchise history when you think about it um, in terms of the collapse, drops them to two games below 500. They played a Clippers team that, oh, by the way, doesn't have Paul George, doesn't have Kawhi Leonard, hasn't had Kawhi Leonard all year long. Um, they really weren't playing starters in the comeback, guys like Batum and Zubots, etc. Um, and they had essentially eight guys that were eligible. And they came from a 35-point de- de- deficit to win the game. Second biggest comeback in the play-by-play era uh, in NBA um, history. Um, so, uh, defense was number one. But I did want to mention a couple of things for those that didn't see it. Because it was really disgusting to watch. Um, at the end of the game, as the 36-point lead was getting whittled away, um, possession by possession... You still got to the fourth quarter, and the Wizards still had a 17-point lead, even though they had been outscored in the third quarter, 40-27. to And then the Clippers kept coming, and then all of a sudden, with about seven and a half minutes to go, and I had I'd been focused on the Maryland-Rutgers game. Really good win, by the way, for the Terps. I told you that this was a capable team, that they didn't stink, and they were going to win some games that you didn't expect them to win. They've won now two straight games as an underdog against Illinois and Rutgers. In fact, they have Indiana at home home on Saturday, and if they get that one, people are going to start talking about the Terps as a hot team that could put themselves back into contention for the NCAA tournament with another big win or two. Um, Their guard play was outstanding. Eric Ayala and Fats Russell combined for 45 points on 10 of 17 shooting from behind the arc. Ayala hit a 33-footer at one point in the game with still 15 seconds left on the shot clock. He was feeling it. Anyway, back to the Wizards' collapse. Um, as they were whittling the the big lead down, I started to pay attention uh, to the Wizards game again and then proceeded to see what happened over the final really four and a half minutes in particular because the Wizards, they'd cut the lead to, at one point, they'd cut the lead uh, to eight. It was 96 to 88. And then the Wizards pushed the lead back to 11 and they were up 11 with four and a half minutes to go. And then, you know, they were up, by the way, um, by eight points um, with 34 seconds to go in the game. Now, 
as they were cutting that 11-point lead down a couple of times and then the Wizards were extending it back, it was terrible defense overall. And some of the shots the Wizards were making were off of possessions that were just embarrassing to watch. I mean, Beal made a couple of big shots off of possessions where it just seemed like a turnover was on the verge of happening. The Wizards checked out with the big lead. They thought it was over, and they stopped playing, period. They certainly stopped defending, but the offense wasn't much better either, and it became a turnover fest. And when it wasn't a turnover fest, it was a near turnover fest that somehow miraculously ended in a bucket, which is why they still had an eight-point lead with 34 and a half seconds left in the game. And that's where I'm going to just mention um, the disgust that I had. So up 113 to 105, they... Um, Montres Harold just in, in the middle of the floor before uh, the Clippers had even, even crossed half court ended up fouling Terrence Mann. Like, what are you doing? You're up eight. What are you fouling for two seconds into the shot clock? Mann makes bro- both free throws. That's 113 to 107. All right. Um, Harold gets fouled on the other end. By the way, they shouldn't have been shooting as quickly as they were shooting. They should have been burning clock, but he goes to the rim hard and he's fouled. He makes one of two free throws, 114-107. And after the second missed free throw, and this is not an exaggeration, go back and look. The Clippers throw the ball down the court and Amir Coffey, who I love, by the way, loved him in college um, at Minnesota. Amir Coffey goes in Um, and dunks to cut it to five. And if you look at this actual play, the Wizards off of a missed free throw, not a missed shot where you might have two guys going, three guys going to the offensive glass, off of a missed free throw, four players of their five on the floor barely crossed half court getting back on defense. So it's a five-point game. Um, and then, you know, uh, they fouled, uh, the, the Clippers fouled, they fouled Kyle Kuzma. He made the first for a six point lead, missed the second. And after the missed second free throw, the Clippers come down and Luke Kennard, Dukey, pulls up from 35 feet and drops one in. And it's a three point game. By the way, before he made that shot to listen to Glenn Consor, who was on the television call with Justin Kutcher, um, they were talking about how, the uh, Wizards, you know, the game was over and the Wizards were going to notch, you know, their 24th win of the year, but that it really didn't feel good because of the big lead that they had blown. Like, it didn't really feel like a win. Well, it wasn't a win. And when Kennard made that 35-footer, you hear Glenn go, this thing ain't over yet. No, it wasn't. Because the Wizards, after calling a timeout and moving the ball, advancing the ball into the front court, couldn't get the ball inbounds. This has been a problem a lot for this team. It was a problem with Scott Brooks. I've noticed it as a problem at times with Wes Unsell Jr. They need to get the ball inbounds against pressure in a big spot, and they struggle to do it. I see that a lot. You know, at the college level and the NBA level. Now, the Wizards sometimes just run what I like to to refer to as Operation Get Open. That's no way, by the way, in a pressure situation to get the ball in bounds when you have to get it in bounds for any basketball team to operate. You know, even when you have the quickest guy on the floor, Operation Get Open is stupid. Okay, run something. 
screen to get your best free throw shooters open. Typically use the screener as your best free throw shooter because the screener is typically the one that's going to be open. Now they did run something that, you know, resembled an out-of-bounds play to get it in, but the guys were like moving at three-quarter speed. And Kuzma didn't get the ball in bounds. Five-second violation. I actually thought it was a quick count. But nonetheless, he should have thrown it into KCP. He was open briefly. And now the Clippers have the ball down three. So what are you going to do? Well, the Wizards didn't have any timeouts left, and the Clippers didn't have any timeouts left, and the Wizards looked completely discombobulated, completely disorganized. They didn't know whether or not they should foul up three. Um, Maybe they did know, but the execution was poor because Luke Kennard got the ball in his hands, and Dinwiddie was near him, and then Beal was on him, and it looked like Beal was trying to foul him to give the foul to put him at the line down three, but he didn't really foul him hard enough but he's reaching, and as he's reaching, and I understand, by the way, it's a, a very, you know, especially when they get into range of being able to pull up, you got to be careful. You don't want to shoot them, you don't want to foul them in shooting motion where they get three free throws. But it was so indecisive, so clueless. And Kennard pulls up, and Beal's reaching late. I don't know that he actually fouled him, but it doesn't matter. He was putting himself into position to be called for the foul. In shooting motion, Kennard buries the three, goes to the free throw line, makes the free throw, and incredibly, from down 36 with 1.9 seconds left in the game, the Clippers are up 116 to 115. You'll, I mean, think about this week, some of the things we have seen that really we, we just don't see the Kansas City-Buffalo game. And then last night, Clippers-Wizards, up 30 at the break, up 36 right before the break, and they lost. By the way, the final 1.9 seconds were absolutely an embarrassment to the Wizards. And this is where I don't get it personally. First of all, they didn't have a plan really for 1.9 seconds down one, needing to go the length of the court. They didn't have a timeout left. Kuzma chucked it down the court for Harrell. There was no play run. Harrell couldn't come up with it. The ball went out of bounds. The Clippers got it with one second to go, and they inbounded the ball, and the Wizards didn't even foul. They tapped out. They conceded. They gave up. They're down one. How about since you just had a five-second violation, how about let's man up, Let's guard hard and let's create our own five-second violation on them because they don't have a timeout either. But no, they just let them throw the ball in bounds and let the last second tick off. Even if they get it in bounds, quick foul. .7 left, they're shooting on the other end. Maybe they'll be stupid enough to make both free throws and you'll get a chance to throw it in bounds and heave up a three that'll tie it and force overtime. I hate that about the NBA. I hate that they don't play it out. I hate at the end of quarters with, you know, three seconds to go, sometimes three seconds to go. Usually it's less than that, a second and a half. And they inbound the ball in the backcourt, and the guy just hands it to the referee rather than dribbling it and taking a three-quarter court shot because they don't want to mess up their field goal percentage. Are you kidding me? You're down one with a second to go, and you're not going to try to play defense to force a five-second violation or maybe force a turnover or get a quick foul? So maybe on the other end, maybe they'll make two. They shouldn't make two on the other end. You know, that shouldn't be their, their strategy. They should miss the second free throw because a three-pointer is going to beat them. Reg- well, you try, to make, you try to make two to get a three-point lead. Let me just make sure that, that that's clear. But if you miss the first, you want to miss the second. 
But if you make both and they're up three, then you've got a chance to inbound the ball and heave up a three-pointer to try to tie it. And who knows? I mean, the Clippers with .7 or whatever was left, they might just, you know, intentionally miss the free throws anyway, and you won't be able to get anything up. But still, try to win the goddamn game. I know they were in shock. They were clearly in shock. But my God, was that a horrendous loss. All right, let's get to the 1991 Washington Redskins. 30 years ago today, 37-24 Super Bowl winners over the Buffalo Bills. During the course of this past football season on this Wednesday show, or at least a lot of them, we've gone down memory lane and said, 30 years ago today, they beat the Dallas Cowboys or they beat the Cleveland Browns, and we went game by game throughout the season. Um, And now we're at the Super Bowl against Buffalo uh, in Minneapolis. I was there. Uh, I've told you that before, but... I was there with my younger brother, and I was there with the woman who I would end up marrying. She was uh, someone I was dating at the time. And we had a great weekend. It was a phenomenal place for a Super Bowl. It really was. I think I've mentioned before that the New York Super Bowl was a great Super Bowl for us as media members. Well, I was not a media member in 1991. Um, I was a working stiff, uh, and I... Uh, we went to the Super Bowl. We were season tickets, uh, season ticket holders, and we actually were among the lottery winners of season ticket holders to get Super Bowl tickets. Anyway, um, it was a phenomenal, uh, uh, you know, weekend, long weekend. We got in there, I think, on Thursday night, and were there through the game and came back on Monday. I do remember this. I don't think the temperature got above ten degrees the entire week, and it snowed almost every single day. But it was beautiful. Um, so the season, you know, as we've documented, was an 11-0 and start. You know, they shut out three of their first five opponents. Um, they set marks offensively. Uh, they were a phenomenal defense during the course of this season. They finished number one um, in uh, points scored, number two in points allowed. Uh, they were the number fourth-ranked offense yards, number three-ranked uh, defense and yards allowed. Um, the amazing statistic from the regular season in 1991 is that the starting quarterback, Mark Rippon, was sacked just seven times. Seven times in 15 and a half games because they didn't play the second half of the final game. And they ended up as a team with a plus 43 sack differential. Pretty impressive. 50 sacks defensively, just seven allowed um, during the course of the year. Uh, It was incredible. And they were not a West Coast offense. It wasn't because the ball was coming out quickly. You know, this was a drop back, throw it deep offense. And they protected Rippon beautifully. Um, the most important game of the regular season was at 7-0. and They played the defending champion New York Giants, a team that they had lost six in a row to in the Meadowlands on a Sunday night. They rallied from 13-0 to win that game 17-13. They had a game that they probably should have lost to the Houston Oilers. Warren Moon's Oilers came in as a very good team in week uh, with Washington uh, holding an 8-0 record. And Ian Halfield, their kicker, missed a short one at the end of regulation that would have stopped the winning 
streak. Um, the winning streak came to an end at 11-0 against the Cowboys at home in late November of 1991. Uh, Aikman to Harper on a Hail Mary at the end of the half was a big play. Aikman got knocked out of that game. Burline came in. The Cowboys would go on to their first playoff berth during the Jimmy Johnson era as a wild card team. They beat the Bears and then lost to the Lions in the divisional round um, at the Silverdome. And then that meant the Lions came to RFK for the NFC Championship game. By the way, the, the, the furthest the Lions have ever been in the Super Bowl era, the closest to a Super Bowl they've ever been, the only time they played in an NFC title game. Um, they got it going again at the end of the year. Uh, their two losses, the three-point loss to the Cowboys and then playing um, their starters for only a half or some of the starters not even for a half in the season finale against the Eagles. Um, they lost to the Eagles 24-22 to in a game that they had a uh, you know, at one point, a nine-point lead in the third quarter. But after resting all the starters, the Eagles came back. So Washington was a 14-2 and regular season team who then destroyed the Atlanta Falcons in what was called the seat cushion game. The seat cushions, the gold seat cushions were handed out at RFK on a miserable day in early January of 1992 in the divisional round game. The Falcons had upset the Saints the week before in the wild card round. Uh, it was the two legit, you know, to quit MC Hammer, Evander Holyfield, Deion Sanders, Jerry Glanville Falcons that came in. They had already gotten their ass kicked once by Washington 56 to 17 during the regular season, a game in which Mark Rippon threw six touchdown passes. That is still a franchise record. Uh, on the radio show this morning, I had Mark Rippon on. Uh, I had Jeff Bostic on, and I had Frank Herzog on. So if you want to listen to those interviews, go to the team, uh, the team980.com. Uh, Washington beat Atlanta 24 to 7, then destroyed the Lions 41 to 10 in the NFC Championship game. It was the second time they had played the Lions that year. They opened up with the Lions with a 45 nothing win. They combined to beat the Lions twice that year. 86 to 10, and they combined to beat the Falcons, their other playoff opponent that year, 80 to 24 in two wins uh, over the Falcons. Um, but there they were. They were ready to face the Buffalo Bills. 13 and 3 out of the AFC, the number one seed, the best record, a feared team, an explosive team offensively. Uh, their offense ranked number one overall in the NFL. Um, they weren't as good defensively, but they weren't bad defensively. They had Bruce Smith. They had Cornelius Bennett. They had Daryl Talley. Um, they had some players defensively. Marv Levy, uh, the head coach, they had lost the Super Bowl the year before when Scott Norwood pushed that uh, 42-yard field goal wide right in Tampa, losing to the Giants 20-19. to But this was a really good team. Uh, they had beaten the Chiefs in the divisional round 37-14, to but interestingly had struggled in the AFC title game against Denver winning just 10 to 7 and maybe that was kind of um, a red flag or a harbinger of things to come because this explosive what they called K-gun offense which was a no huddle offense which was a fast break offense with Jim Kelly and the MVP of 1991 Thurman Thomas and Andre Reed etc James Lofton Don Beebe um, Denver had really done a number on them, and Buffalo had survived to win the AFC title game. They were a 12-point favorite, and they won the game 10-7 to 
uh, over the Broncos um, in that AFC title game, managing, by the way, just 213 yards of offense. And in that game, Kelly was really under duress. Anyway, fast forward two weeks later, Super Bowl twenty six. Washington was a seven-point favorite over Buffalo. That was, if I recall accurately, surprising to most. A lot of people thought Buffalo was the better team heading into that Super Bowl. You know, this would have been a smell test special. The public was definitely thinking that the line was way too high, that Washington shouldn't be a seven-point favorite over Buffalo. They should be like a three-point favorite, maybe. Buffalo's really good. Plus, it's, you know, the year after losing the Super Bowl, they'll come back. You know, they're ready to win it now. They had the team. You know, and Washington was dominant, no doubt, during the course of the season. But they didn't have the stars on their team that Buffalo had. Jim Kelly was a star. Thurman Thomas was the NFL MVP. They were stars. You know, Bruce Smith was a star. You know, they had that fan base like we did. Um, But Washington was a seven-point favorite. Should have known. And the game um, was uh, interesting in the lead-up to it. Chuck Dickerson, and I'll talk to Jacoby about this, was a coach, a defensive coach for the Buffalo Bills staff, and he made disparaging remarks about the Hogs leading up to that game, which got Washington fired up. Jacoby will um, you know, shed light on specifically uh, what they did in response to that. Um, keep in mind that the year that Rippon had was a phenomenal season, but there was still this belief that, you know, is Rippon really the guy? You know, early that year, Rippon had held out before the season started, got a one-year deal. He was playing on a one-year deal, you know, turned out to be a lottery ticket um, for him. But, you know, he was a guy that had, you know, played well the year before, but had split time with Stan Humphreys in 1990, ended up leading them to a playoff win over Philadelphia at the Vet in the wild card round, threw a bunch of interceptions in the red zone, and they lost uh, at San Francisco at Candlestick to end the year previous. And, you know, going into that 91 season, the Giants and the 49ers were the favorites in the NFC. Um, and one of the question marks was quarterback. I mean, you know, no questions anymore about Rippon, but going into the, the season, and even during the season, as great as they were in Rippon through the deep ball as, as well as anybody in the league did back in that era, and certainly during that season. But there was no doubt that it was like, that's Jim Kelly, though. You know, that's Thurman Thomas. And, you know, there was a sense that Rippon had something to prove. And, you know, um, Rippon told me this morning on the radio show, um, he got hurt during practice that week. Some of you may remember this. Uh, I don't remember it being publicized um, the way he described it. He didn't think he was going to play. He got hurt at the end of a practice late in the week. He said Gibbs practiced them so hard and eventually had to cut the, the practices short. And Rippon was worried he wasn't going to play, but they did a lot of therapy and, 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 and had him ready to go on that Sunday. So um, with that backdrop in mind, I want to get to the game itself. I watched the game. It's available on YouTube. You know, it's three plus hours, the CBS broadcast of the game. And uh, let me just, I, I'm, I'm going to play some of the, the plays for you uh, chronologically in the game, but I want to mention this first and foremost. The most impressive thing about Washington in this game to me was Washington's defense. 
it was smothering. It was dominant. That was the thing that if you go, you know, and you go to you, you go to YouTube and you, you know, Google, you know, you YouTube Washington Buffalo Redskins Bills Super Bowl 26, it's right there. The whole game's there as it was broadcast by CBS. You'll notice they dominated the line of scrimmage. They beat the hell out of Jim Kelly. Thurman Thomas had nowhere to run. The league MVP ended up getting nothing in that game. The final numbers for Buffalo um, for the, the 1991 off, offensive MVP of the league, 10 carries, 13 yards. They only had rushing yards from their running backs, uh, 40 total yards rushing. They only ended up with 283 total yards, period. And really most of that came at the end of the game with two meaningless drives to cut a 37 to 10 deficit to 37 to 24. They turned it over five times, almost all of them forced. Jim Kelly looked completely wide-eyed and shocked at how under siege he was from the jump. For me, more than anything else, like if I were doing my Monday morning game take following the game, my the, the number one thing that I would have liked from that game was Washington's defense. It was dominant. They totally smothered and overwhelmed Buffalo's offensive line and Buffalo's playmakers. And it wasn't just up front where it was primarily, but the linebacking core, you know, with Andre Collins and Kurt Gouveia and Wilbur Marshall, and then the secondary with Mayhew and Green and Edwards, you know, et cetera. They were unbelievable in that game. Just utterly dominant in that football game. And that, to me, was the number one reason they won that game. They won that game because their defense dominated it. Now, offensively, this is where the game started You know, early on where you're like, wow, they're really going to be able to move the ball. The game was a weird game. First of all, the opening kickoff came before the CBS orange sleeves guy, Ernie Bauer probably, I don't know if he did that Super Bowl or not, um, had okayed for the kickoff. So they had to redo the opening kickoff. And then you had a bunch of strange events early in the game. For a game that was dominated by Washington, and they won the game 37-24, and they were up 37-10 at one point, the score at the end of the first quarter was 0-0. But Washington, you could tell in watching the game, was the better team. I'm going to start with this highlight. This was early in the game, Washington's second drive, and you'll see offensively them get into a groove with a couple of plays from Mark Rippon to Art Monk. I wanted to play this particular highlight because I want you to listen to the way that Madden and Summerall talk about the all-time greatest, Art Monk. Third and 14. The Bills jump around on defense. Warren was the man in motion, and they come with a blitz. Rippon to Monk, complete first down Redskins. Williams was the Buffalo defender 19 they got they needed 14 hey you see Art Monk this is going to be the third pass that he catches here's, a, here's an amazing guy I mean he's big he's strong he's he's quick he just knows how to play the game he uses his hands his feet just catches anything 12 years in the game and the guy hasn't slowed up he just he just 
every time he plays, he just amazes you. You know, he told us he thought he had slowed up, but nobody else thinks so. Hey, you talk to a defensive back that has to cover him, and he'll say he won't. Or was the man in motion, Rickman again, gets it to Monk, and Monk breaks the tackle, Monk to the end zone, out of bounds, inside the five. Knocked out by Kelso. So on that drive, which was Washington's second drive of the game, Art Monk had four catches for 79 yards on the second drive of the game. It would have been more because on third down and two at the Buffalo three-yard line, uh, ripping through a touchdown pass to Art Monk that got overturned because, yeah, Monk's foot was touching the end line. He didn't get both feet in bounds. So that touchdown was reversed. Washington, you know, there were no fourth down analytics back then. They sent out uh, uh, Chip Miller to kick the short 19-yard field goal, and this is what happened. So it's still a scoreless game. Low Miller now, instead of the extra point, for the field goal from 19 yards away. And a fumble, Rutledge does, and Buffalo comes away. Cornelius Bennett hit Rutledge. And the Redskins, after a very impressive drive, get no points. Remember that. Mark Rippon does have confidence, though, but I think the Buffalo Bills are going to have confidence, too. That ball was a good snap. It just went right through Rutledge's hands. You're exactly right. It's still nothing-nothing. Jeff Rutledge botches the hold on the short field goal, and even though Washington had driven it down the field and Monk had had four catches for 79 yards and nearly a fifth, uh, catch on the drive. Washington came away with no points. And the the weirdness of the game, by the way, and I failed to mention that the first play of, uh, from scrimmage from Buffalo, or for Buffalo, included Kenneth Davis in the backfield because Thurman Thomas couldn't find his helmet. But after that missed field goal, Buffalo takes the field. First play, Kelly throws an interception that Brad Edwards snags with Charles Mann barreling down on Jim Kelly and Daryl Green getting a hand on the ball in flight intended for Andre Reed, and Brad Edwards ends up with the first of two interceptions on the day. So Washington's back at it. You know, they've got field position. They missed the field goal, uh, but here they were um, back in position to get points on the board and take the lead in this Super Bowl uh, game. But Again, game gets weird. After the turnover by Jim Kelly, Rippin throws an interception at the Buffalo 11-yard line. Ball's tipped up into the air and picked off by Kirby uh, by Kirby Jackson. So literally, Washington had it uh, at the Buffalo 2-yard line, came away with no points, and then after a turnover, had the ball at the Buffalo 11-yard line and came away with no points. And it was just a very weird start to the game. Well, you get into the second quarter, and Washington now is on the move. 
Um, they get to a third and 10 at the Buffalo 17, and Rippon misses Gary Clark, and Low Miller kicks a field goal, and Washington's on the board with a 3 nothing lead. But I, I'm going to tell you, as you're watching the game, you're like, man, it's so obvious that Washington is the better team. They're dominating the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, and yet it's only 3 to nothing. Well, Washington forced a punt on the next drive, and then they got it going. Rippon to Clark, uh, Rippon to Monk. Um, and then Rippon uh, hits Ernest Spiner for the first touchdown of the game. I think the Redskins have done an excellent job of, of mixture. Not only mixture of run and pass, but mixture of formation. Going from two tight ends, three tight ends, two wide receivers, three wide receivers, right, left. They have really moved the ball around in this first half. Second and nine at the 10, Rippon outside to Spiner. Touchdown, Redskins. So Washington's got a ten nothing lead with about ten and a half to go in the first half. And as I mentioned, Washington's defense at that point, I don't think Buffalo's offense wanted any part of the field. Washington's defense with a 10-0 lead back on the field. Listen to John Madden as he's talking about Martin Mayhew's coverage right before uh, the second turnover of the game for Jim Kelly and the Buffalo Bills. Here's Kelly back to throw. to knock it down and him down yeah you just get the feeling that Kelly hasn't gotten started I mean that one there was just right in there maybe the most underrated player on the Redskin defense is Martin Mayhew Kelly he has become a good corner Kelly back to throw again going deep it's going to be picked off Darrell Green makes the interception Redskins have them on the run now. They got their offense going. They got their defense going. They got their coverage going. You throw too many passes on Daryl Green, and he is going to come up with some of them. You see the pressure right there? That made Kelly throw the ball. He looked like he tried, tried to throw it too hard, and it just took off on him. And that ball just kind of floated in the air. And Daryl Green, the fastest defensive back in football, he can catch up with any floater. So Washington takes over after that Daryl Green interception at their own 45-yard line. Uh, Rippon hits Gary Clark over the middle. Great run after catch. Ricky Irvins rips off a 14-yard run. And on first and goal at the Buffalo 1, uh, midway through the second quarter, Washington leading 10 nothing. This was the play that really made it apparent to everybody that Washington was in control. First and goal at the one. Riggs is the deep back now. Touchdown. 
second he was on the goal line, he sprinted all the way to the 50 and over to the sideline. There is one happy, pumped-up quarterback. The Redskins have taken this game over. So Washington had a 17 to nothing lead at that point uh, after Gerald Riggs went in essentially untouched for the first of what would be two touchdowns for Riggs uh, on the day. And by the way, both of the touchdowns barely being even touched. They were dominating the line of scrimmage on offense as well. Um, Buffalo punted on the next drive, then Washington punted, and then Buffalo got something going towards the end of the first half. Um, Jim Kelly, and I'm going to talk to Brad Edwards about this, towards the end of the half in a 17-0 lead, they got the ball the deepest they had it into Washington territory. Um, After, by the way, an average punt by Kelly Goodburn. uh, And Kelly hit uh, McKellar, the tight end, for a play. Then he got sacked, and then on a third and 18 um, I'm sorry, uh, before he got sacked, he threw to Don Beebe at the goal line and Edwards laid the, the lumber to Beebe, which separated ball from Beebe. That would have been a touchdown. Um, but Brad Edwards made an incredible play, which is not just the two interceptions he had. He had other really good plays on the day. Um, and then after a sack, they faced third and 18. And there was a very controversial play in which Brad Edwards gets to Andre Reed on a pass too early. Like, it's pretty obvious that it was defensive pass interference and a flag should have been thrown. It wasn't thrown. Andre Reed lost his mind, slammed his helmet down. It cost him 15 yards, and it knocked him out of field goal range. And so it, instead of it being potentially 17-3 to at halftime, it was 17 to nothing at halftime. And then we get to the second half. Because the first play of the second half is kind of legendary um, in, uh, in the discussion of this game over the years. Richie Pettibone was truly the best defensive coordinator, I think, he and Bud Carson, of his era uh, of being a defensive coordinator. It was such a great one-two combination, Gibbs and Pettibone. Um, Richie was one of the best at game planning. He was one of the best at halftime adjustments. But they, they, the story goes that at halftime, Richie Pettibone said to Kurt Gouveia, he said, they're going to th- run this play on first and 10 after they receive the kickoff for the second half. We are going to A-gap blitz Andre Collins. And Jim Kelly's going to have to unload it quickly, and he's going to unload it for his hot, and his hot's going to be the tight end, and this is where you're going to be, and this is where he's going to throw the ball, and he's going to throw it right to you. Be ready to catch it. That's the story. I'm sure there's some exaggeration over the years. BB is split out wide to the right. Thurman Thomas behind Kelly. This time they take a little more time. Kelly passes intercepted by Kurt Govea. Govea out of bounds at about the two, and the Redskins are in business again. Again, it was the pressure is one of those things. The blitzes, I think they that's what Denver did to him. The Buffalo Bills haven't put out that fire yet. They got the pressure up the middle. Kelly threw it, didn't even see the interceptor. First and ten from their own 20 after a touchback on the second half kickoff. Kelly drops back. Here comes Andre Collins on a blitz right up the middle. Kelly unloads it over the middle right to Kurt Gouveia, who returns it to the one-yard line 
and Gerald Riggs scores untouched on the next play, and it's 24 to nothing, Washington. We will talk to Brad Edwards about that play here shortly. Now, the rest of the game is domination um, for the most part, except for, and for many people who haven't gone back and watched the game, and this is why I did it for you, there was one potential moment in the third quarter where Buffalo had a chance to make it a game. Up 24 nothing. Um, the the Bills dro- drove the ball down the field and kicked a field goal for their first points of the game. It was 24 to three. By the way, they had a fourth and goal at the Washington three yard line and they kicked a field goal down 24 nothing. In this day and age, obviously they would have gone for it and then tried to go for the two point conversion to make it 24 to eight. But they were probably smart because a uh, there was no two point conversion, but b they probably wouldn't have scored. Washington was so good defensively that day. But Washington had kind of taken their foot off the pedal a little bit. And they had to punt on their next drive. And then they, Buffalo, it was a, a, a terrible punt. And Buffalo ended up with great field position at midfield. And they scored a touchdown on a Thurman Thomas run. And it was 24 to 10 with six minutes to go in the third quarter. So, you know, score wise, all of a sudden it was a game. And if they could get Washington off the field again and get the ball back, who knows? Well, I can tell you in watching the game, after they scored to make it 24-10, to and Washington was in a third down and four, all right, from their own 27-yard line, the crowd was deafening. I remember the crowd being more Buffalo than Washington. 60-40 maybe, I don't know. But the Buffalo fans were loud. Washington fans were loud too. But the Buffalo fans were loud also. And it was third and four with five minutes to go in the quarter. Big play up 24-10, losing momentum. And this is how they delivered on third and four. Third and four. Buffalo just a three-man rush. Clark makes the first down for the Redskins from Ribbon. And I tell you, Ripon proved that he's a big league quarterback. You know, the momentum was starting to change. The crowd was into the game. And I think the other important thing is, you notice who he went to? Gary Clark. I'm not sure people remember that there was a moment in that game, and that was it, when if Buffalo could have gotten a stop, they would have gotten the ball back with momentum down two touchdowns still in the third quarter. Uh, but they converted Rippon to Clark for 10 yards, and then Washington went down, scored a touchdown on a Rippon to Gary Clark 30-yard touchdown throw, 31-10, game over. Washington got two field goals on two drives in the fourth quarter to make it 37-10, then completely took their foot off the gas, and Buffalo scored, uh, recovered an onside kick, by the way, and scored again. It was 37-24, to and then Washington ran the clock out after Buffalo failed on an onside kick, uh, the second attempt on an onside kick, and Washington won the game 37 to 24. There are two more pieces of sound I want you to hear. 
Um, first of all, let me just mention, statistically, Washington was dominant. 417 total yards to 283 for Buffalo. Buffalo had five turnovers in the game. Washington had the one early in the game. Uh, Washington rushed for 125 yards uh, per carry, uh, for, uh, 40 carries for 125 yards. So um, uh, a big day of, uh, uh, of rushing the football for Washington. Um, against uh, Buffalo. Uh, they had, uh, by the way, Ricky Irvins was 13 of 72, 13 for 72. Ernest Beiner, 14 for 49. Gerald, Gerald Riggs had the two touchdowns and just five carries. Rippon was 18 of 33 for 292 yards, two touchdowns um, in the game, uh, throwing one to Beiner and one to Gary Clark. Uh, the receptions were Clark had seven for 114, Monk seven for 113, four of those coming on the opening drive. Ricky Sanders had a catch for 41 yards, and Biner had three catches for 24 yards and a touchdown. It was a one-sided beatdown uh, in Super Bowl 26. Now, there were two more pieces of sound that I found from this that I wanted to uh, play for you. Um, first of all, there was a point in the third quarter when there was a close-up of Richie Pettibone on the sideline. And because the number one takeaway for me from this game would have been the defense, listen to John Madden talking about the Washington defense and Richie Pettibone in particular. Frustrating day for the Bills and particularly for Jim Kelly. Well, this Washington Redskin defense has done an outstanding job on both ends rushing Kelly and covering. And this guy right here, Richie Pettibone, is a master. I mean, he is a master at defense. He is a master at mixture. He is a master at playing poker, I would bet, because he has played every hand the right way today. There was a lot of respect around the league for Joe Gibbs and for Richie Pettibone and for that front office, which started with Bobby Beathard and then had Charlie Casserly and for the ownership uh, led by Jack Kent Cook. Speaking of Jack Kent Cook, this was the Lombardi Trophy presentation. On the stage were the commissioner, um, Paul Tagliabue, Joe Gibbs, Charlie Casserly, and the owner, Jack Kent Cook. Leslie Visser was there for CBS, and you'll hear Greg Gumbel um, throw it to Leslie Visser, and this is the way the post-game Lombardi Trophy presentation sounded, uh, and you can watch it on YouTube um, whenever you want. Uh, it was cool to watch. It'll be cool to hear. Here it was. Let's take you downstairs to the Washington Redskins locker room, and here's Leslie Visser. Leslie. Greg, it truly is hail to the Redskins as they've delivered their third title in 10 years to the nation's capital. It's a jubilous scene in here, high spirits, and I'd like to introduce you to some of the folks who helped make this possible. First, General Manager Charlie Casserly, who deserves an A for his Plan B acquisitions. Fabled owner, Mr. Jack Ken Cook, a man undoubtedly headed for the Hall of Fame, Coach Joe Gibbs. <laughs> and the commissioner of the NFL, Paul Tagliabue, who will present the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Jack, we congratulate you on behalf of the league and you and your outstanding organization for a marvelous victory today and a marvelous season. Joe, this is your third Super Bowl victory for the Redskins in a decade under your leadership, and that's an achievement that's uh, getting close to uh, the top of the list. So uh, we congratulate the Redskins on an outstanding season and a great Super Bowl 26. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, it's a great honor to accept this because I have so much pride in our head coach, his coaching staff, 
the wonderful band of players that he's assembled, our head office, and most of all, the best bloody fans on the face of the earth, Redskin fans. I thank you very, very much, Paul. Thank Congratulations you. to you, Mr. Cook. Uh, Joe, many people had trouble solving the riddle of the no huddle. How were you able to do it today? Well, it was just, uh, I think our defensive guys did a great job. Richie, Torgy, Peck, and Emmett, and the players had a good plan. We gave them a lot of looks, and we tried to do a lot of things, and I think it helped. You're now the first coach to win three Super Bowl titles with three different quarterbacks. How would you distinguish each one? Well, I think they were all very different. They're all of themselves. Uh, I was very fortunate to have Joe Theismann when I first came here. Doug William, a class act, big, strong guy, and Rip is a young one that's uh, taking us there. I just want to say a thanks to our owner, our general manager, Charlie Casserly, all the work behind the scenes, everybody in the front office. But, hey, those three guys, have we've had good quarterbacks. This is your third title in 10 years. Uh, do, do you feel fulfilled, or might this be enough? I really, uh, right now, I feel very... Uh, humble I guess because I realize I get a lot of credit for a lot of things I really don't do and uh, I just the Lord's blessed me like I said with a great situation and I'm just thankful for that and thankful for him to let me do this. Congratulations to you Joe and we'll have more from the Redskins after this word from your local station. And that's the way it ended 30 years ago today Washington hoisting their third Lombardi trophy uh, after a 37 to 24 Super Bowl 26 win over the Buffalo Bills. Uh, the following year would include, you know, the big contract uh, battle with Mark Rippon, the holdout in training camp, the slow start to the season, a regular season that was a battle to kind of stay in the mix. They got into the playoffs really through the back door after losing their final game of the season, but needing Minnesota to beat Green Bay and Brett Favre, by the way, to get in as a wild card team. They went to Minnesota, won um, a playoff game, and then lost uh, their title uh, as defending champs uh, in San Francisco at Candlestick in January of 1993 in what would be Joe Gibbs's final game um, in that first stint as Washington's head coach. Uh, it was great uh, looking back at this game, and I would urge any of you that remember it, or even if you don't, um, you know, if you've got some time to go back and watch how great this team was and how dominating they were at times defensively in this game. Uh, just a reminder to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. It doesn't cost you a thing. Rate us and review us, please, on Apple and Spotify. Brad Edwards will join us next. He was the runner-up for the MVP in Super Bowl Twenty-Six. right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The show today is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag or MyBookie.com. Use my promo code KevinDC and they'll double your first deposit all the way up to 1000 bucks. They're going to give you free money for the championship games to gamble with this weekend, for the Super Bowl two weeks from Sunday, any of the basketball you want between now and then. Uh, but you've got to use my promo code KevinDC. Uh, if you've already got a site, who cares? Take MyBookie's free money. If there's something written in the promo code, erase it and put Kevin DC. They'll double your first deposit all the way up to a thousand bucks. You put a thousand bucks in, you'll have two thousand to gamble with. My bookie's a safe place to gamble. You'll get your money if you win. Fair point spreads, fair totals, fair money lines, fair pricing. MyBookie.com, MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code Kevin DC. All right, as we continue here on the podcast today to talk about 30 years ago today, Super Bowl 26, Washington's last Super Bowl appearance, last Super Bowl win, who would have known uh, that 30 years would go by and the franchise wouldn't have sniffed another one. But joining me now on the show, and we've had Brad on the show before, is Brad Edwards. Brad, of course, the starting safety for that 91 team. The runner-up MVP of Super Bowl Twenty Six because of his two interceptions. He's the current and has been for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, something like that, the athletic director at George Mason. Brad joins us now. So... Uh, you know, I, I think you and I uh, had um, I had you on the podcast earlier in the season. We we talked a little bit about the '91 season, but I have to confess, right. I had not watched at that point the Super Bowl game before having you on. But I did watch the Super Bowl game over the weekend. I watched the whole three hours. It's available on YouTube. By the way, have you ever watched it? Have you ever gone back and watched the game? Yes, I, I have not watched it in one sitting. But I have seen all of the plays in in parts where I've watched, you know, 10, 12 minutes of the game here. And then within a relatively short period of time, I just I've just never sat down from start to finish in one sitting and done that. But, yeah, I have, I've seen the whole recap. Replay. So there are a couple of things that struck me in watching it. First of all, it was a dominant, dominant defensive performance. Like, I, I wanted to ask you, it looked like in watching this game that one of the most prolific offenses of that era, the Buffalo K-Gun, no-huddle, you know, offense with Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas and Andre Reid, et cetera, et cetera, um, it looked like they were completely flummoxed and frustrated and like they realized they didn't have a shot early in that game. Is that your memory of it? You guys dominated the line of scrimmage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, other than maybe the first play that um, where Thurman Thomas wasn't in the wasn't in the game and the hole did open up, you know, very well. Other than that, and, and then late in the game, I think clearly when it got, we, we had a, a pretty sizable cushion uh, throughout the fourth quarter. But other than that, it did feel very dominant uh, <clears throat> from our perspective. 
And, and I think some a number of things, as you mentioned, and now just sort of reflecting back, probably played into that. Certainly having uh, – there, there are lots of run-and-shoot concepts in that system. We were able to see, obviously, Detroit – uh, in Atlanta, um, twice a piece, you know, throughout the season, and, and that allowed us to, to one, to 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 work on some blitz pe- pressure packages, some some uh, coverage combinations that that helped us out a lot. We also had Denver. Denver played them very well. Uh, I, I think maybe that was in the playoffs, maybe in the championship. It was the championship game. Recall. Yeah, it was a championship game. They they played them very well. Uh, and, and we we felt like they were guessing, um, certainly in the running game, for one, uh, that they're walking to the line. They're, they're kind of guessing. And, and so we had a couple things. Our coverage combinations uh, we felt like would be really effective in our ability to communicate and, and run an audible package on the run, no huddle, uh, and then be able to apply uh, our, a multiple blitz pressure package built around uh, isolating James Gathers in the middle where we could occupy, you know, say we could occupy both guards yeah. and then isolate jumpy gathers on the center or the, and do the same thing, occupy the center, occupy the right tackle and, and get him isolated on the right guard and create this incredible pressure inside, you know, particularly on third down plays. And so the combination of those things, you know, we were we just we we ran every, just about every blitz in the in the playbook uh, that we had. Um, you know, that particular day. Jumpy Gathers. I mean, the long arms and just the the length and the tall. I mean, the, the he was just he was <laughs> the such the power, the strength. What an underrated part of of that team going into the season because we didn't really know. Um, so yeah. I, I want to talk about your performance. Brad Edwards had two interceptions in the Super Bowl. All right, he was the runner-up MVP to Mark Rippon um, in Super Bowl twenty-six, and it was a weird start to the game. And I didn't really remember this, but you right. know there it was, really was yeah there, there there was the touchdown pass to Art that got overturned. There was a botched hold by Rutledge on a short nineteen-yard field goal attempt. And it's still nothing, nothing, and it's it's entering the, the latter portion of the first quarter. And the truth is, it felt like Washington had dominated the game, but the scoreboard said nothing, nothing. And then came the first of what turned out to be five turnovers for Buffalo on the day. Kelly over the middle, pressured by Charles Mann. I mean, he got walloped yeah. by Charles Mann. Right. And do you remember who got the deflection before the ball landed in your hands? <laughs> My- my great good friend Daryl Green, yeah. who um, we have, uh, he he likes to. Uh, we we have Daryl is you know, clearly is like a really like a brother to me. I love Daryl Green. You know, we work together here, Mason, obviously, and have had a lifetime uh, relationship and friendship. And and he likes to remind me that he got a finger on that pass, and I like to remind him that it's not lost on me that they were throwing at you yeah. <laughs> originally. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so we can both go back and thank Charles Mann. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't throw at Daryl a whole hell of a lot, but uh, but no, yeah, nobody but, did. Right, <laughs> but he was he was on a crossing route. I think we were playing. I can remember. I feel like it was maybe an open side uh, uh, five man blitz. I think. From the open, I believe in, in playing man free is is what I, I feel like I remember on that particular play. But Daryl was, I, I think, covering 
somebody coming the crossing pattern in the middle, maybe Andre Reed. Well, what continued after your interception there in the first quarter is the weirdness of the first quarter because we gave it right back. Rippon had a ball deflected and picked off. And the game, the first quarter ended with no score, even though it felt like, you know, it was already apparent Washington was the better team. And then, you know, Daryl got an interception. Um, and then uh, there are two plays at the end of the first half I want to ask you about. And I, y- you've got a great memory for these things. But BB, who was really a speedy receiver, towards the end of yeah. the first half, he is open for a touchdown. And you came yeah, over and, and you unloaded on him and separated ball from body. That was a huge play in the game. It was 17 nothing, and they had a chance to make it 17-7 at the end of the first half. What do you remember about that play? Yeah, we, we were in a, we were in a, a two deep <clears throat> two deep zone, play, really a soft zone, and um, and and Kelly had done a really good job of holding me. I could feel BB coming up the sideline. And and Kelly gave me just a little hint at the end that kind of held me on the to create a little bit of space over there, uh, on you, you know up the outside the numbers um, up the sideline and and I was a little late getting over there. I mean it's it's a it's a tough play for a safety. It's also a tough throw for a quarterback, which we know if you're going to be late on something, that's the that's the area to be late on. And but when I I realized, I mean this that ball was coming in like a missile and um, I feel like number two, I was probably a little late reading the number two receiver. Cause I, I think that, that I want to say that might've been the slot receiver or the tight end who went to the flat or went away. And that, that pulls the corner down and creates a little bit of, so I don't think we got a lot of um, redirect on BB at the time. So I was a little late getting over there and I knew at that point the ball's coming in and I'm just going to have to, dislodge the ball which today you know i'd be fine you know i'd be kicked out of the game for that hit today do you, you know, do, you, do you think so and, it's you know. it's funny because i watched it over and over again and i thought it was a fairly clean hit even for today yeah, I, well i did too but i, I like the i yeah, like I, the sort of tongue-in-cheek you know it's right sort, sort of the, the 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 narrative of the day is it was a you know if you, it, you know, hit with your head kind of thing. But, I, yeah, I felt like it, it was, was a, a big hit. You know? And and the ball got separated, and, you know, that, that was 17-7 right there before the end of the half, and it wasn't. But then the other play I wanted to ask you about came – got to be DeAndre Reed. Yeah, play. it came two snaps later. All right, they're still – it's like third and long because Kelly had been sacked on the next play. And yeah. Kelly throws down the middle of the field for Andre Reed, and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, I, I was sitting here while you were. Um, I was sitting here trying to remember. I, I can't even recall what what we were actually playing because we had so much man combo, uh, and our even our zones, our two deep zones, would end up playing a little bit like a man combo type of uh, uh, principle to them. And but I just remember he he ends up kind of in the middle of the field. I think he came from the left side of the, the formation. I believe um, I have to go back and look. And, and I just, I mean, I had a great position on the ball and all I'm trying to do is make sure I really should have intercepted the ball. I'm, I'm, I'm even today, 30 years later, I'm very disappointed that I didn't pick that ball off. Um, but it, it, the body positioning was, was tough because I, you know, I can't hit him 
specifically without being in the position, a really good position to catch the ball, a very clear position to catch the ball. So you're trying to angle your body, you know, in the Super Bowl, in front of 100 million people, you know, this is what's going on in your brain athletically. And, it, you know, and we, yeah, we, we had contact, but I had a clear uh, dominant position on the ball. And But the contact uh, and was – but the contact was early. Well, I, I yeah. I mean, it, 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 uh, we'll have to agree to disagree. Well, because, you but, know yeah. – it was um, it, it, it what what happened, you know. Then was really uh, well, that's what was really important was what happened after the play ex- when, and you can see this very very clearly uh, in the and I can see it in my my mind as if it happened yesterday when when Andre Reed jumps up and, and and again it is that is a play that could have gone either way for sure. Um, and, and in today's universe <laughs> probably would have been flagged. Um, but he, he gets up, he takes his helmet off and the official isn't really doing anything at that point. It doesn't seem like he's even reacting. And Wilbur Marshall, and, and I can hear him. You couldn't hear a lot in there because it was Kevin. When I say it was loud, I mean, you, you, you could not hear people 10 right. feet away from me a good bit of the time on the field. But I can remember him saying, you can't, and he's pointing, you can't let him do that. And the official kind of does a double take, and he pulls the flag, and, and that was huge. Yeah, Reed, Reed huge jumped delay. up. Reed jumped up yeah. after, look, I've watched the play, and Madden, you know, on the call with Summerall says that was definitely a defensive pass interference. <laughs> it was missed. You were there just a bit early. Right. I mean, you were a ball yeah. hawk. I mean, you were, you really were. I, I, yeah. You I were, couldn't get around him to get right. to the ball, and I was in a clear, you know, should have been, a, I should have figured out a way to pick, but pick he, that ball But he was so incensed, he got up, he ripped his helmet off, he slammed it down on the turf, and you can see, you're right, Wilbur Marshall's going, hey, 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 that should be a flag, and the referee pulled the flag out, and that was a significant flag because it knocked him out of yeah. field goal range. They would have had. And it's, it, absolutely. And so and instead it's a of, great example of, of why I say all the time that football is as much, if not more, a game of restraint than it is a game of aggression. And it is in plays like that that go when, when you are, have to take the human body to the absolute pinnacle of, of that line between you know aggression and restraint, and, and you really have to exercise restraint. And, and, and that's just a great example where really, you know, just it just hurts your team, but it, it helps a huge for us. Um, I want to ask you about another play. Uh, you would have a, an interception later in the game with the score 34-10, which is why you ended up with the two interceptions. You ended up um, being the runner-up MVP. But the first play of the second half is kind of a legendary play because there have been so many stories told about the Kurt Gouveia interception and how, and how Richie essentially, you know, the stories that various people have t- told, and I want you to tell your version of the story, that Richie pretty much predicted exactly what would happen if he ate, you know, if he, if he, if he a gapped, you know, uh, on a blitz, Andre Collins, he knew exactly where Kelly would throw it and told Kurt Gouveia where to be. Um, that's the first play of the second half, 17 nothing. He intercepts it, returns it to the Buffalo two-yard line, and, and the next play it's 24 nothing. Do you rem- What do you remember specifically yeah. <laughs> about the lead-up to that play? Yeah, I, I just re- I remember in the, in the locker room, um, 
and I want to say it was probably, I mean, you know, Richie was the absolute master defensively as, as good as anyone I've ever um, worked with at, uh, at halftime adjustments and, and midstream adjustments. And um, uh, Joe, the offensive staff could do it, you know, as well offensively. But uh, uh, what I remember is that Larry Pecatello really, they, I mean, they, it was like they were drawing it up. They, they had the, if I remember correctly, at part of the time they had the, the grease board on the floor in the in the locker room, and they and it's like they're it's like kids drawing up a play in the sand, and it was it was literally that fundamental, and it was they had this canny ability, and I've, I've probably said this before, and forgive me if I you know repeat myself again, but it, it was just like this overly simplistic, and I remember thinking like this is there's just no way this can work. It's that simple. And it, but there had been this history in, in the two years I've been there of, of uh, Larry Pecatello and Richie Pettibold doing this. And, um, and so they, they, you know, they came up with this play, they identified something that a weakness that is clearly, you know, and, and obviously this is coming from the box as well with, with Emmett and, uh, and Bobby DePaul who were up in the box and, um, and so I just remember them drawing it up that way, not thinking it's going to actually open up like a, you know, like the Red Sea. I mean, it's just unbelievable how how that played out and how they drew that thing up in the sand in the locker room. You know, you just you said something that I've heard many times over the years when you guys who played for Joe and or Richie um, have talked about them. And you said like there, there was brilliance in their simplicity, you know, um, you know, having worked with Cooley for so many years or doc for so many years or Rigo for so many years, it was like what made them complex was their simplicity. Like, you know, we all think of like this incredible brain trust, which they were, but you guys explain it as what they were really good is, you know, essentially making something look more complicated than it really was. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and they could do that and do that often. And, and there, there were, there was, and, and were, I think it's the correct word, were, were lots of, complexities in, in that system, particularly in the, in the coverage adjustments, but they, they would make that simple. Like when I first got there, you might have a call like 65 Bronco X change, open eye filter switch that I think we later added a Minnesota catch cut to on the back end. But what that did was tell every single player what their or position group, if you will, what their responsibilities were within that, that call and, and that's not that uncommon, but it's it's it, it, for that time. I think it was very you know it's complex, and it was those those calls were much much longer and much more complicated, but but very simple to to understand. And, and they were good teachers. I mean, they're just really good teachers. Um, what has been what 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 has it been for you? You know, you are. You're you're specifically you know one of those players. You mentioned Jumpy Gathers and Fred Stokes and Tim Johnson and Eric Williams. Part of that defense that was specific to the great '91 team. You know, Charles Mann obviously was a part of some of the other teams. Daryl Green was a part of the other teams. Monty Coleman, um, but this was the team that you were a part of. And I think you know we've we've already talked about it here this morning before you got on. I think it's the greatest. <laughs> 
uh, Washington team of all time. I think it's you know, and there many people have agreed it's the it's it's among the greatest, if not the the greatest Super Bowl winner of all time. But what's been which? What has been being a part of this team meant to you in your life? Oh, it's it's meant. I mean, it's been life changing in so many ways. I mean, the fact that we're sitting here having this conversation, the fact that uh, I hear from people uh, throughout the course of my day in life about you know their memories of, of that game and that team and this uh, and what it just what that meant to their lives and their their allegiance and their affinity for sport and, and particularly that team. So it, it just it it's it's it'd be very difficult obviously to summarize in a in a very short period of time. But it, it, it really was life changing for, for me. Uh, I've been around some phenomenal coaches throughout my life and some great teams and it just that was just the epitome of, of a truly great team. And I think you're right, even statistically and analytically in a number of respects. And it's always hard to compare different eras and teams of different uh, seasons and those sorts of things. But I think, you know, when you do look at, at, at points scored margin or, or points allowed or rankings of offense and defense and strength of schedule and, and all of those sorts of things, it does line up and, and, Statistically, with what I saw on the field, you know, certainly during my nine years, and then going to camp my tenth year with Green Bay, who had just come off winning the Super Bowl under Mike Holmgren, and then ended up going back that year and losing to Denver, you know, and seeing all those teams, the early Viking teams that I played on, that were playoff teams in '88 and '89, that you know, we I think we were number one defense in the league both yeah. those years. Yeah, so, you were part of a really of good defense there. Right. And so I, I, but when you, for me, when I put it all together, that team just, they, they just had it all. They really did. And it was, it was just, and you had just great character. You had a great culture, you had a great locker room. I mean, it just was, you know, lots of people and you had amazing alignment in the organization from, from the ownership to the front office, to the coaching staff, to the players, to the support staff. And when that happens in in really any sport organization, I mean, you're going to have success. But they they just took it to another level in my mind. You know, Brad uh, Edwards um, was part of the Plan B free agency of of 90 uh, and 91. Um, He ended up with 18 career interceptions over a 10-year career. And uh, of those 18, he had 13 of them as a Washington Redskin. He had four that that season. He had six the next year interceptions, including, you know, the next playoff game you played, which was the 92 postseason, and you guys went as a wild card team. You got you backdoored your way into the postseason, ironically, with Minnesota beating Brett Favre and the Packers, which got you a, right. a, a game against Minnesota, your former team. You had an you had an interception in that game, you know, as well. Right. And, uh, I mean, you had a hell of a career. I mean, it's really, the, in terms of volume of, of interceptions for a free safety during a short period of time, um, that was a hell of a lot. Um, it must have been a lot of fun. Give me one, you know, maybe memory or, or thing I haven't asked you about that, you know, that you, you, you like talking about when you think back to those days. Oh, they, they're just, they, wow, there are so many. They're, and they're just, 
you could just dive into so many Gibbs stories and, and things that he uh, that made him great, that made players like Daryl Green great. Uh, I just I, I, I'm constantly reminded here because I work with Daryl about just how if I could take his competitive DNA and dump it into you know the 500 student athletes we have here at Mason. I mean just how you know amazingly competitive he was and how exacting. You know, Joe Gibbs was, and I remember early on, I guess there's maybe one memory that really strikes me early about being in Washington, where we had a, there was a question on a Friday, early in the season on a Friday practice, and, and Joe's Friday practices were like, I mean, they were game speed. I mean, they were game speed, and you just were trying not to take somebody to the ground, uh, but it was occasionally somebody would get, somebody would get hit, but I mean, it was. And he wanted, when I say he wanted no question, he, he wanted that thing to be an absolute precision, exact um, uh, trial run of, of what that game should look like from speed, tempo, execution across the board. And early on that year, if I can't, I cannot re- recall the game, but there was a question on a Friday, and, and he's not practice. You know, it was on the defensive side. I mean, some, some, we had a question about somebody went motion and. And it was a, a question about a coverage adjustment or uh, something like that. And, and he had he had the staff over there, you know, having a conversation. And uh, you know, about and my my sense is always looking at the the dynamics of that meeting. It was why do we have a question at this time? Of and, I, and that's when I went. That guy is different. Yeah. And that's attractive. And I like that. And that's why he's who he is. And he, in the, in, in the 92 year, I remember week 13, week 13 or 14, I go in on the scout team. We're running a four week look to the right, and, and our offense runs like a stretch, kind of a stretch play with Gerald Riggs. Gibbs wanted all, you probably heard people say this before, I probably said it before, but he wanted all the defensive players to come by full speed, game speed, wrap up whoever had the ball, and then let them go, and he wanted every player coming by and doing this. Well, as you're rolling up on the weak side into the flat, you're going to be, if you're running a stretch play to your left, I'm rolling up on the right, you might be one of the last players to get over there, you know, maybe the defensive end on that, the right end. But So, so I finally get to uh, Gerald Riggs about 40 yards downfield, <clears throat> And it's week 13, 14. I mean, you're, you're beat up. You're t- you know, you're tired. You've done this right a million times. And, and so I kind of felt like, the, well, this play's pretty much over. So I kind of ran by and turned around to jog back to the, the huddle. And I, and, and I look over, and here comes, you know, Joe's walking toward the defensive huddle, which he never did. And that kind of caught my attention. And he walks past the defensive huddle, and, and he's clearly looking at me. And I'm going, well, what's this? and then it starts to trigger my brain. I'm like, he's going to get on me for running for Pat, running past Gerald Riggs 40 yards downfield and not hitting a 250 pound <laughs> guy who's twice my. You know what? I'm, and that's what he did. Yeah. He comes by and goes, "Hey, Brad, I need to remind you, uh, we need to wrap up the running backs and the and the receivers. <laughs> this is why we do it, and you know we need to do this right every time." And he turns around and walks off. I'm like. How that guy is a machine! Like he does not miss anything. Yeah. And uh, but it was in a non-threatening way that just was. But you did not want that to happen 
to you as a player. And it was a it was brilliant. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. It's always good to catch up. You can follow Brad on Twitter at Brad Edwards Five. He's the athletic director at George Mason. They've got, they're having a pretty interesting basketball season. That is for sure. Um, so interesting to think about. You know, Brad Edwards and Martin Mayhew and Daryl Green. You know, they're all you know still back in town. But Brad's been here forever. Daryl's obviously been here forever. Martin Mayhew's back. It's like that secondary from that '91 team all working in town in prominent positions. I appreciate this so much. I really, uh, uh, it was really good to catch up with you. Um, let's, let's do it again. Maybe be, you know, sometime before the end, uh, before next football season. Well, it's always a pleasure. And as you know, you're one of my favorites. So, Hey, thanks for all you, you mean, you do and mean to all of us in sport in this, uh, certainly in this area. You're too nice. Thanks Brad so much. Bye right. right, pal. Thank all you. Right. Take care. Bye. All right. Uh, When we come back, uh, Joe Jacoby will reminisce with us right after these words from a few of our sponsors. All right, we continue with our discussion of 30 years ago today, the Super Bowl 26 Super Bowl win over the Buffalo Bills. And on that team in the starting Uh, tackle in that game, one of the two starting tackles in the game, we'll get to that in a moment, was, of course, Joe Jacoby. Um, Joe, in that particular game, started at a different position than he had started in their very first Super Bowl and then the second Super Bowl loss uh, and then the third Super Bowl that they won against Denver. Um, We'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, because I have not talked to you in a while, how are you doing? What are you up to these days? Well, Kevin, it is great to talk to you again. I mean, we used to do this every week for a while there for a few years, but uh, it's good to be back with you. I'm doing great. I mean, I'm not living up in the area, as you know that. Uh, I'm I'm still working. I'm still doing some part-time coaches. We do a, uh, a, a big man's camp down here in the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. So we invite to a combine, and we take the best linemen out of North and South Carolina who come to this, and we work with them over the next five weeks, and we take them through different drills. We go through one-on-ones, uh, pass blocking and run blocking, and this is all without equipment. And I'm, I'm enjoying that because these kids, I mean, we had a couple kids, one son with the UNC a couple years ago this past year, the guy who's one of the coaches, his son just signed with the Naval Academy. Oh, so awesome. we're doing some positive things with these kids down here and just enjoying it and playing with my three grandsons. That's awesome. You know, um, you mentioning, for many people listening, remember, um, J- Jake and I did uh, for several years when – when Dan Snyder's Red Zebra launched the radio station, which then would eventually merge with 980, um, I won't get into all of that detail, but Jake and I did the pregame show, postgame show, and the Monday morning quarterback show together. So for, right. I think, three seasons, we were together during football season a lot. And it's still, by the way, I've probably told you this before, but it is still you and Doc – 
are the two that my boys, because they were very young at the time, that you you and Doc are the ones that they remember. You know, like if they came to a pregame show at a restaurant or, or a postgame show, if you and I were at a restaurant <laughs> together or whatever. Wow. And when they remember those days, it's like they love, you know, every kid remembers Doc and they always remember you too because you guys were so kind to them and, you know, you were sort of larger than life figures, but we had a lot of fun, uh, during those days, but, um, all right, I'm calling you because obviously 30 years ago, it's amazing that it's been 30 years and, uh, obviously you should have been, and you should be one of the, uh, players that played in that game that are in the hall of fame. Uh, we've covered that ground many times in the past, um, and we'll continue to cover it moving forward. But before we get to the game day itself, you had been on the previous two Super Bowl winners, the three previous Super Bowl teams. When did you realize that that 91 team was special and was going to be a team that could win the Super Bowl? Well, it was probably early on. I mean, uh, we had a, a, a loaded team. And I mean by guys who were just, a talented, but nobody really thought they were talented. They were team guys. They were not individuals. They were individuals, but they didn't worry about their stats. And that's and then we went and started. We just had a, a reunion uh, of the former players that were involved when we had about 30, 35 guys on a Zoom call. And it was amazing that guys, uh, I looked at and uh, hear the guys who were talking and, and all that and the things that we went through. And it was what these guys talk about. And, and you know, to this day, those guys are my brothers because of what we went through and the battles and stuff. Everybody hears all that. But, you know, I, I look back on that and, you know, we started out 11 and 0. In the preseason, I don't think we won a preseason game. Right. And Joe was talking about it. He goes, he goes, I know y'all were good. He goes, I made it tough on you. I didn't put any of the offense in. I, we ran basic stuff, basic defense, and we got our butt handed to us every preseason game because he made it very vanilla. He made us physically and mentally tough going through that and hearing all that abuse. You know, you mentioned, and others have mentioned this as well, that, you know, first of all, I, you know, I think it's interesting that the team was not picked to win the Super Bowl before the, the season started, even though there's that famous story about Playboy magazine picking the skins to win the whole thing, and Buck got into it with, with Gibbs in the preseason after you guys lost the final uh, preseason game. But anyway, um, and the giant, the Giants and the 49ers were the favorites to come out of the NFC. The Giants were the defending champs, and the 49ers had won a couple of Super Bowls in a row before the Giants won the one that they had won the previous year. But you right. and, and others have always said we were much more talented than maybe the names. Like, people didn't know the names of Jumpy Gethers or Fred Stokes or, you know, Martin Mayhew or, you know, or whatever. When you think back on that group, like who stood out from you for you as just a really talented player that kind of we as fans or the media really didn't know about? Does anybody kind of stick out in in that in that form in, in that kind of a description? Well, I mean, I, I think you mentioned 
two off the top of my head that I can think of, and you mentioned one of them. One of them was Jumpy Gathers. Yeah. I mean, Jumpy came and played off from the Saints, and he was a tall, lanky, weighed about 295, 300. He was as tall as I was, and he was a great defensive lineman, unheard of, unsung hero. He just did his job. And the other one, but based on the offensive line, was a guy who was a top draft, number one draft pick and all that, and now he's a doctor down at Baylor University, is Mark Addix. Played in the USFL, came here. He was their backup. He was like the seventh or eighth guy in our rotation of linemen. And that shows you the depth. We even have Russ Grimm. He was not a starting five guy. So those are the type of individuals that were on that team who have been starters around the league are now backups in, on our team. So uh, those are just the two names that stand out in my mind right now. Did you guys, as teammates of Rips, of Mark Rippins, did you believe in him? Because there was a lot of, you know, concern, fan base, media base. Do they have the right guy at quarterback? Remember, he held out and ended up only signing the one-year deal. Um, he had thrown three picks or four picks in the in the playoff game the year before at Candlestick to end the season. What did you guys think of your quarterback going into that year? Uh, I, I didn't really have any thoughts about it. I didn't think anybody else. Um, you know, some may have, but most of the guys on the offensive line were also involved in that year that we won Super Bowl twenty two, And that was a musical chair year, too, between yeah. Jay Schrader and Doug Williams. That, and the starter was not really confirmed until game 16 when he named Doug Williams the starter and up in Minnesota. We go through, we went, went up winning that. And, but we went week to week not knowing who was the guy. So I think we were we trusted Mark. We knew what we had with Mark. Mark was not, gosh knows what we see now out there, not no Patrick Mahone and, you know, didn't have those quick legs and was able to run. We knew we had a statue back there. That's you know, he was fit good in DC with all the other monuments because they didn't do it either. Yeah, uh, but but you know, Doug Williams. You guys always preferred Doug to Jay in terms of a person and a leader. You know, you've always mentioned that, and all the guys that played on that team. You know, Jay. Right. You know, Jay was not the leader or the guy that Doug Williams was, and the players. And by the way, I think that actually, you know, um, went for you know the fans of the team. I think everybody was you know was in on Doug, even though when Joe was going back and forth, you had obviously been the starting left tackle for you know you could argue the last true franchise quarterback for this organization, which was Joe T. Did Rip have any of the? leadership stuff or the likability stuff that Doug that Doug had or that Joe T had? Did you guys have that sense or was it kind of a bit of a question mark? No. No. I, I, personally, not for me. No. I, you know, I, you know, was it perfect? No. We weren't perfect either. We, But we worked together. I mean, I, I, I see all this stuff today flying around people with the, the happy anniversary on you know, the 30th anniversary and all that. And 
And Joe said it best. He goes, you guys put everything aside. He goes, egos, I'm not getting playing time. I'm not doing this. I'm not the best or whatever. And we all came together for each other. And that's, I still remember that to this day. It was, we had meetings. Uh, we didn't have the coaches in there. It was us. And everybody laid it on the line. They let their feelings be known. And nobody got upset by it. And people would talk all that. My gosh, we had fights on the sideline. You see all that stuff now going on. We had that in 91. But all that stuff worked itself out because our interior goals and motive was to win it all. And, and we knew that each individual on that team, that's what it was. And they put everything else aside, and we went and won. I mean, Joe was talking about the Gibbs this past week, two days ago we had this. And he goes, I had a call off practice up there in Minnesota during Super Bowl week. <laughs> right. He goes, he goes, you guys were killing each other. He goes, you all were so ready. He was saying about John Madden came out the one day. It might have been a Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, one of those three days to watch practice. And he just he walked off and he made a comment to one of the PR guys. He goes, this game won't even be close on Sunday after watching one of our practices. So everybody saw what we did. We didn't have the big names. I mean, we, you know, we, what you see now, uh, we, we had the Art Monk, but Art Monk, you wouldn't know he was a star-studded receiver because Art Monk was like back in the 80s and 90s watching those old commercials. E.F. Hutton, when he spoke, <laughs> people listened because he didn't speak very often. Yeah. But uh, Art did it on the field, and we all, all put, it, put it aside. I think that's interesting what you said about Madden because I told um, the story earlier in the show. I, w- I was at the Super Bowl at the Metrodome. I'll net it out because everybody's already heard it, but for you, um, I was in the lobby of the hotel that I was staying at, and the New York radio station, WFAN, Mike and the Mad Dog were hosting a show, and Madden was a guest. And typically, you know, commentators wouldn't make predictions, but Madden, I'll never forget it, on that Friday before the Super Bowl said, I've been at the at the practices of both teams, and he said, "I I, I got to tell you, Washington's ready." He goes, "I think this game's going to be one at the line of scrimmage, and I think Washington is just the better team, and I'd be surprised if they don't win the game." I mean, he saw it, and in watching the game back over the weekend, it's amazing how you guys dominated the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. Oh. Now, I want to ask you about your year because I think a lot of people, you know, thirty years in the rearview mirror forget that at that point in your career, you know, Jim Lachey was the starting left tackle, uh, an incredibly talented player. I mean, one of the more gift, would you agree with me? One of the more athletically gifted left tackles in the history of the game? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Jim, I mean, what he did with his body and stuff, I mean, physically strong, like you said, and could move and, you know, uh, we had to make a decision, and it was uh, brought to both of us. And, and Jim, Jim didn't like playing the right side. Jim didn't play on the right side very well. He played on the left. He was got used to that. And at my stage of my career, it didn't bother me because I started out playing right tackle, played guard, and so 
moving around didn't bother me, and they asked me, and it was left up to my decision if I was going to move or not. And it was better for the team because it, it made us a better offensive line and putting the pieces in the right place. And I happened to be in the right place where I was supposed to be at that time at right tackle. Jimmy was better at left. Yeah, even though you were, even though you were the best left tackle of that, you know, of the '80s and in that decade, and you, but you, yeah, to your point, you were in your 11th year, probably. I'm guessing 10th or 11th year in '91. But didn't you start that season? playing guard because Ed Simmons was the right tackle, or do I have that wrong? No, you have that right, that Ed gets hurt in the first game. Right. And then they they moved me, instead of bringing one of the backup tackles that was there, I can't remember who it was, because they wanted the five best linemen to play. Yeah. And I was still considered one of, still one of the five best linemen. Right. And, and, I, and I made the move into guard, at that point, I'm going, you know, if it gets me, you know, two, three, four more years, because I'm not playing, we used to call playing left tackle and right tackle, I didn't have to block those guys out there on the belt, beltway. I didn't have to deal with that speed anymore. LT. I just had to deal with, you know, the, the fridge and, uh, and the bigger guys, which is fine with me because I was one of those bigger guys, too. Do you, by the way, before we get to the the season and the game here in a, in a minute, do you love how you, in many ways, you know, your team, obviously, but you, in many ways, get linked in the same conversation about Lawrence Taylor because you faced him and because the team faced him so often and so many times, and he's considered, you know, let's be honest, in my lifetime, I think he's the greatest football player I've ever watched, not just the greatest defensive player, but the greatest football player. Um, Do you love, do do you like that? Do you enjoy that conversation? You know, he has spoken about you in the past. He's talked about, you know, playing against the, the Redskin teams in Jacoby. Do you enjoy that when you're linked with him? Well, yeah, at least my name still gets mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, good or bad, you've got to be honest with yourself. He's a good player. And, you know, I was fortunate enough. I, I did some fairly, had some fairly good games against him. He's also had some great games against me. But that's the nature of the game, and, and that's how the beast works. And you got to – but – I, you know, they talk about those battles. He talks about it. I, I heard from him two weeks ago, and he was saying, you know, somebody called. I guess somebody wants to talk to him. Well, it was LT. He goes, you know, he goes, you guys ought to make me an honorary hawk. He goes, I was in your house backfield more than the <laughs> running back was. But I you said, know, well, yeah, you're right too. <laughs> so, so do you you actually communicate with him? Yeah. He calls every now and then. We talk. And, oh, that's. Yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. He's wants some, some tough things, like we all sure. do in life. But, I mean, I, those battles were great. I mean, we sit there and talk on the phone. He goes, I finally figured out how to play you. I said, Well, good. How, how, what did you do? He goes, I couldn't play you normal. I couldn't play you straight up. I had to play with a nasty hangover. So I went out all night and just got drunk and came in, and that's how I had my best game against you. 
I said, well, heck, I wish you would have called me. I could have hanged with you. <laughs> you know, he has um... – Look, there. We've we've been through this so many times over the years about how egregious it is that you're not in the Hall of Fame. But Lawrence Taylor has been one of your biggest advocates over the years um, for for being a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, I I think correct me if I'm wrong. Not only um, Lawrence Taylor, but Bill Parcells as well. And this may uh, this may be off, but I think Randy White once came to your you know, um, sort of advocacy saying it's a joke that you're not in the Hall of Fame. Right. They both, they've all been there. So I, I've been very blessed. Yeah, of course it's disappointing. I mean, we're all human. And, and I, I get disappointed. But I have no control over that. But I hear all the positives from the guys that I played against who, who respect me and what I did on the football field my career and all that. You know, what are they going to do? You know, they don't, they don't like me and all that. That's fine. I still played in four Super Bowls. One of six guys on the Washington Redskins football team that played on six. I'm one of four that started all four Super Bowl games. So they can say whatever they want about me. My history, my stats all speak for themselves. And they know that. So we let yeah. the chips fall where they may. Sooner or later, they're going to leave the door open and I'll sneak in. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope so. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, what game, before we get to the Super Bowl game, what game from that year, other than the Super Bowl game, is a memorable game for you or a memorable a memorable moment? Oh, what game was it? Uh, I mean, there was some early games. I think one of them was... Uh, the Houston game. Right. We really should have lost that because they're, I think their field goal kicker missed short one. one. Yeah, short one. Yeah. And we ended up winning by a field goal. It was about three points or so. And, you know, it's stuff like that. I mean, I think in the first five weeks, we shut out three opponents. Yeah, you did. I mean, three shutouts first five weeks. Yeah, first five I'm weeks, sorry? three. First five weeks, three shutouts. Right. You look back on that, and I remember to this day, Coach Gibbs and all that, uh, you know, we had those bye weeks started and all that stuff. So we were going to have a bye week after our seventh game. He goes, we get to the bye week, depending on how many games we win, is we'll count, we'll get a day off per victory. Well, we were 7-0 and when we got to the bye week. <laughs> yeah. And he couldn't go back on his words. He was gone. What am I going to do now? He goes, I promise him a day off for every victory. I give him a week off. <laughs> um, and then the game after the uh, after the bye week was the giant game that year, which you guys had not beaten them in three years. And you went into the yeah. Meadowlands and beat them, and that was a huge game. All right, let's get to the Super Bowl 30 years ago today. Let's start with what you know. Chuck Dickerson, the defensive coach for the Bills, had said about uh, the Hogs and you in particular when he said, "Quote: Jacoby's a Neanderthal. He slobbers a lot, and he probably kicks dogs in his neighborhood." Closed quote. <laughs> so tell me what you remember about hearing those quotes from this guy Dickerson and how it came about and how it motivated you guys. Oh well, it, it comes about. 
because of the uh, uh, line coach at that time was Hannafin. Right. And, and, and Joe. So I can't remember which, was it a Friday meeting or something or Thursday? He said this earlier in the week. And I, and I think Joe brought it up in the meeting. So, and it's how they turn those tables and, and motivate you because, you know, how they highlight it. They're showing the video on the screen during the meeting and all that. And it not only upset, and I don't know if it really upset the offensive line as much. I think it was everybody else on the team because of what our bond was as a group. And it was like, all right, you're coming in here and you're talking about our family. Right. You don't do that. And I think it resonated more with the guys who weren't the part of the Hogs, everybody else. And they took it on to themselves of what they were going to do. So that guy just didn't upset the Hogs. He upset it 50-some guys because of his comments and stuff like that. Um, I. Uh, I had. I'm trying to think of who said this. Either it was either Bostic or Rippin, who I had on earlier this morning on the radio show, and they said towards the end of the game, you ran towards the sideline and said something to Dickerson. Do you remember that? Oh, I can't remember. I mean, <laughs> probably something we can't uh, divulge or say on the. On <laughs> well, what you, we're talking no, about you, you, you can. <laughs> it's it's a podcast. You can, but but I think it was actually now. I think it was um, Bostic who said, you know, uh, Jake ran over there and and went over to Dickerson and just said, you know, something like, "How do you effing like us now?" or something like that. Um, cause something you, like that. Yeah. So, you know, it did, in the back of all of our minds, I think, the guys on the line, you know, we, there is a pride factor. And he called this out. And when you call somebody out, you better be able to back it up. And they couldn't back it up. And we we had our days there, and we dominated on that aspect. So there's something that, you know, I had remembered, but but Rippon brought to my attention um, uh, even more so. I don't, I don't think I re- recall it being this serious, um, or at least it wasn't reported this way, that in one of the late-week practices, he it, they were very physical practices, um, and that, that he hurt his ankle. Like, he he wasn't sure if he was going to play after he injured his ankle at the end of a practice that was really physical. Do you remember those practices leading up to the Super Bowl, and do you remember Rippon getting hurt specifically? I don't remember Rippon getting hurt. And all our practices uh, throughout the, that season and every season I played, they were physical practice. But now uh, this is Super Bowl week, and we're, we're playing here soon. And the emotion, the intensity, and uh, the excitement is, is picking up. I mean, and Joe had to cut these practices short. He goes, we're going to lose somebody because the, the physicality was just over the top because of what was at stake. And, and we all knew that. And I, I think the one incident that happened during the week, and we were, uh, Tuesday was our day off. So we're at a Chip Little Miller's house, because Chip lives, is from that area, Minnesota. Yeah. So we're out, and he's got the snowmobiles out and stuff, and the rest of us down in his basement were playing cards and all that. Well, next thing I know, here comes Chip, or not Chip, but here comes one of our trainers, and he sits down with 
and kneels down between Russ and I. He goes, we got a problem. And Russ and I looked at each other. Okay. I said, tell me, tell me it's not rip or chip. <laughs> That's all we wanted to know. <laughs> and it, it wasn't. Neither one of them got hurt. It was the back. I can't remember. It was the, the backup quarterback. I wrenched his knee. He ended up having to get surgery after the Super Bowl. Really? Off of it. Yeah. Well, well, the the, the, the the backup quarterback was Rutledge, who botched the snap on the first field goal. Uh, it wasn't Rutledge. Oh, it was Kerry Coughlin. Oh, Kerry Coughlin. Kerry never dressed. Got it. Got it. Got it. So we were we, once we heard it was Kerry Coughlin, we go, you know, we felt bad, but it wasn't somebody <laughs> that was going to play. Right. So, um. Uh, but what do you so? Uh, the game itself, just what are your memories of the game? I, I remember uh, uh, we, it was, to me, it was like any other game. I mean, we had EB, we had Ricky Irvin. So, I mean, everything was going back and forth, and Rippin was doing well. And Rippin that year, uh, his short game at passing wasn't the best, but the long ball, yeah. I mean, they hit the long ball consistent all year, and it was no different during that game. But what I truly remembered most was our defense. I felt sorry for Jim Kelly. Right. They were kicking his ass. Right. I excuse my language, but my gosh, the abuse that guy took. I mean, I think we had five or six sacks. I remember watching Jumpy Gathers, who we talked about earlier. He takes the guard. I can't remember if it was the right side, right guard or left guard. And he walks him back to Jim Kelly. I mean, literally walks him, picks him up. The guy's feet are dangling. And Jumpy takes him all the way back and dumps him at Jim Kelly's lap and gets a sack. Our, our defense was just a, a nasty I mean, just nasty. Yeah, I I mentioned that earlier. That was the most striking thing to me in watching the game over the weekend for the first time in a long time is they the the defense absolutely overwhelmed a great offensive football team that didn't have a chance. Didn't have a chance. I mean, Thurman Thomas was the 1991 MVP that year. He forgets his helmet or somebody hit it from him or whatever it was. And he literally had 10 carries for 13 yards. And Jim Kelly was sacked five times and hit what seemed like 20 times in the game. Oh, God. It it was overwhelming, the the defensive dominance. Yeah. Um, and it made our job so much easier because, I mean, the turnovers. I mean, we come out to start the second half. Kirk Cabea intercepts the ball and gets us down to the one. Yeah, I know. One play, we scored another touchdown. I remember we started the fourth quarter. We're up 37 to 10. Yep. And we, we get the ball, and I hear, hear, I hear Jeff Hayes going, I can't remember who the nose tackle was, and he's, Rutting and grunting and pushing Jeff all the way back, and he makes some comment to Jeff, and Jeff goes, "Hey, look at the scoreboard." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he 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 actually yeah, he told he told that story. He said that actually he said he said the, he said, and I'm forgetting who the guy was, but he essentially said the the guy hadn't talked all day, and then eventually he said, "What did you say?" Um, and he said something like. 
I I forget what it was. Now I'm forgetting what it was. that I kicked your butt? And yeah. Jeff goes, look at the scoreboard. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, I've asked you this before, but you played on all four of Joe's Super Bowl teams. Obviously, the starting right. left tackle for the first three, the starting right tackle for the fourth. Um, what, which of the four teams was the best team? Which of the four what? Was the best team. Oh, Kevin, you can't do that. Yes, I me. can. Yes, I can. I just did. I know you can, but that doesn't mean I have to answer it. <laughs> That's hard to answer, Kevin. I mean, you know, what, what, one year from now, I'll be celebrating the 40th anniversary of Super Bowl Seventeen. Oh, my God. That's right. Got to start programming you know, that one. I, I was reflecting on that this morning with my wife. I said, can you, this kid who nobody drafted, and, you know, and Coach Gibbs thought I was a defensive lineman, I'm now celebrating anniversaries <laughs> of the Super Bowl, right. not Super Bowl, but Super Bowls that I played in. I mean, I'm a blessed man. I am very fortunate, you know, with the family I have and all that, but anyway, I was reflecting back, I go from, uh, this year to a, a, a lineman that was 32 years old and left 11 years, knew that he was at more at the tail end of his career. A year from now, I'll go and celebrate the 40th from a 23-year-old snot-nosed kid who didn't know where he was at winning a Super Bowl in L.A. So, uh, gosh, I mean, uh, the, the Super Bowl 17, this is a personal preference. Is my favorite. One, because it's the first one. Two, because it happened on my mother's birthday. Three, my mother had passed away the year before. Oh, okay. So that that holds a special memory for me. Sure. Uh, really, and I thought today somebody said, if we didn't lose Super Bowl eighteen, that may be considered one of the best Super Bowl winning teams Ever. No doubt. We didn't lose the Super Bowl 18. No doubt. Two, two one-point uh, well, one losses during the regular season right. away from a perfect record. The Offensively, you guys were unbelievable. And the, and the turnover margin was incredible. But I think the yeah, 91... Plus 42. Plus 42. But I, plus 42. But I think the 91 teams overall, offense, defense, special teams... Was Correct. was just a cut above every uh, the other teams. By the way, I think too. I, I think. Go ahead. Charlie Castley said that the other day on the call. Yeah. And, and we're still statistically in there. It was still number one, whatever, all that. Yeah. I think we were the 14th team, ranked 14th team in the 100 year anniversary. Uh, well, we had a power outage right there with Jake in mid-sentence. Uh, my apologies. We ended up being without power for about 30 minutes. Fortunately, I think we were nearing the end of the conversation with Jacoby anyway. Um, Jake actually offered to come back on, but he had a meeting he had to get into. Uh, but we were near the end anyway, and it was so good to catch up with him, hear his stories about the 91 team. He is, and I've mentioned this so many times in the past, for those of us that have been fortunate enough to get to know some of the players of that era and work with those players as I did with 
with uh, with Jake. Um, he's just one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Uh, and it is disgraceful that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, by the way, he, you know, there are a couple of things from our conversation with him. I think sometimes people forget that the hogs were much different, you know, by the time you got to 91 and the hogs, by the way, changed a lot as well. You know, we know about the three different quarterbacks that Gibbs won Super Bowls with, you know, Joe Theismann, Doug Williams, uh, and Mark Rippon. We know about the different running backs, Rigo to start and then Rigo and Joe Washington. And then of course it was George Rogers, Kelvin Bryant, Timmy Smith in the postseason uh, uh, after the 87 season, the Super Bowl went over Denver. And then in 91, it was Riggs and Biner with Ricky Irvins becoming a significant part of the rushing attack as the season went on as well. Uh, I think people have this impression that the Hogs never changed, but they did. They changed a lot. They're, you know, George Stark, Fred Dean from the early years, you know, guys like R.C. Thielman, you know, obviously Mark May. Um, and when you got to 91, Joe wasn't the starting left tackle. He was the starting right tackle, and he began that season as a guard. Grimm was banged up at the end of his career. Uh, Bostic and Jacoby were the only two constants among the Hogs. Now, the Hogs... Um, you know, uh, the, the hogs are the hogs and they, there are many different guys that became part of the offensive line known as the hogs, but the original hogs in terms of the five starting offensive linemen, not counting, you know, the honorary members of the hogs or maybe the founder of the hogs, you know, doc Walker, but, um, you know, that year had Rollo McKenzie and had Mark Schlereth at the guards and had Lachey at left tackle. You know, it was Bostic and Jacoby who were the only two that ended up starting for um, the Hogs uh, for all uh, four of the Super Bowls, including the three Super Bowl wins. Anyway, uh, it was such a good thing to catch up with Joe and hear his voice again. By the way, when we got cut off, Joe was in the midst of kind of talking about how that 91 team is considered, you know, one of the greatest teams in the history of the league, one of the greatest Super Bowl winners of all time. And that is a perfect segue into my next guest. Um, Aaron Schatz uh, joins us right now. Aaron is the founder of Football Outsiders. He's the creator of the DVOA metric. All right. This is something that I've used um, and referred to over the years, the defense adjusted value over average number. Um, which breaks down every play uh, from every game and compares a team's performance to a league baseline based on situation, you know, down distance, et cetera, to determine sort of an overall value. And while I'm not, as most of you know, invested heavily into analytics as the only way to come to a conclusion about, you know, a play or a game or a situation or a team or whatever – um, I have always enjoyed, and I've been a subscriber to Football Outsiders for a couple of years now. And Aaron joins us right now. And Aaron, I don't know that I've ever had you on the show. I don't think I have. But in thinking about this 91 memory show, I thought of you guys because Football Outsiders has ranked Washington's 1991 team as the greatest team of all time since for as long as you've been measuring NFL teams. So let's start there. Um, why? Why uh, the conclusion that the 1991 Washington team is the best ever? In our numbers, they're the best team. I mean, our numbers go back to uh, 1983. 
and Washington is the number one team both for the regular season and if you include the playoffs. And explain to people who are unfamiliar um, with how you came to this conclusion, why you came to this conclusion. So the way DVOA works simply is we take every play and assign it a success rating based on the down and distance. Then that gets compared to a league average baseline that is adjusted for situation and opponent. Special teams get added in as well. And you put all that together and you get a percentage of generally how efficient a team is above average. So we've done that for every team going back to 1983. And Washington comes out about 60% above average if you include the playoffs. And that's the number one, number one team. Who's second? The 1985 Chicago Bears are second if you include the playoffs. For regular season only, it's the 2007 New England Patriots. So for regular season only, the undefeated, you know, 16-0 and Patriots that ultimately lost to the Giants in the Super Bowl with one of the most explosive offensive teams ever um, is number two to the 91 uh, Washington team. Now beyond the analytics, you know, and the DVOA numbers in evaluating these teams, you're a football fan. Are you surprised that Washington's 91 team is, you know, came out where it came out? Well, I think I'm surprised in that the 1985 Chicago Bears have become so legendary. Right. But I think the expectation was that once I did 1985, that Chicago would come out number one. And they're very close to Washington if you include the playoffs, but Washington still comes out a little ahead of them. And listen, hey, the Chicago Bears were their own mythmakers, right? I mean, one reason why they're legendary is because they built their own legend in a way that the 1991 residents didn't really do. Um, so in that way, I think I'm a little bit surprised. But anybody who knows football knows that that 91 team was fantastic. I think the only reason you may not know that is because it wasn't fantastic for a multiple-year period of time. The fact is that the best teams for single years are often not the best teams over multiple years. Interesting. Um, I want to come back to that in a moment. Um are so in terms of the overall regular season let's focus on regular season the highest ranked DVOA defense of all time regular season 85 bears uh the highest ranked defense for the regular season is the 1991 Philadelphia Eagles wow with Reggie White and and that whole uh that whole team which did not even go to the postseason. Because Randall Cunningham tore his ACL in the first game of the season, and they ranked 26th out of 28 teams on offense, and it could not overcome, the the, the defense could not overcome how bad their offense was. In fact, you know, Jim McMahon, if I recall, Jim McMahon ended up starting games for them at whatever age he was, along with Pat Ryan. And the only reason I know that is looking at the 91 skins, obviously they played the Eagles twice. Um, The Eagles just were inept uh, offensively. Man, you think about that division in those years with Washington and the Giants and the Eagles and the Cowboys. Um, and they had some loaded teams uh, in there. What's the number one regular season offense of all time from a DVOA standpoint? 
the 2007 Patriots. Is it close? Who's a, who's second? The 2010 Patriots. Are, are they close is, at all? It is close. Yeah, it is close. What about the other Washington Super Bowl winning teams and the team that many people, Aaron, here argue about occasionally, um, some people say that the 83 Redskins, who went 14-2, and lost two games in the regular season by one point, had a plus 42 turnover margin, which is unheard of and unprecedented, um, You know, went through the playoffs and then got smashed in the Super Bowl by the Raiders. Um, what about Washington's other Super Bowl teams and where they rank? 83 ranks 15. In the regular season, 15th all time regular season. Yes. But like you said, lost in the Super Bowl. Right. 1987 ranked pretty low. Uh, 1987, first of all, the way that I've done 1987 is to pretend that the strike breaker games never happened. Got it. So all of my numbers for 1987 are for a 12 game season where the win-loss records do not necessarily match up with the playoff seeding because of three games that I don't count. So Washington was eighth that year, but did go on to win the Super Bowl. Uh, They're one of the lowest Super Bowl champions in my numbers as far as their regular season performance. Is is the 83 number the 15th-ranked offense you had 15th ranked offense. No, 15th ranked overall. Overall, okay. Team overall, yeah. Is every how many teams in front of them were non Super Bowl winners? Uh, how many teams in front of 83 Washington? Let's see here: uh, the 2007 Patriots, the 87 49ers, the 2010 Patriots, the 2019 Ravens, the 95 49ers, the 2012 and 2015 Seahawks. Uh, 2004 Steelers, a lot of the teams ahead of them actually did not win. <laughs> that's that's interesting. I was wondering, I figured there were some teams, not that many, um, in front. Um, where? So you're, right now, where are you guys in going back? Like how, what year are you back to in doing all of your, you know, your, your analyses with, with DVOA on teams from, um, from the past? We're back to 83, and like I said, we have 82 and 81 pretty much all ready to be broken down. So by the end of this offseason, we expect to have numbers for 82 and 81, which will give us another Washington Super Bowl team. Um, exactly, and a Super Bowl loser, too, when you eventually get deep into the 70s. Do you have – I'm just curious, what do you anticipate – from, let's just say, going back into some of the Steelers teams of the 70s, etc. I don't think we can. I don't think we're going to be able to find enough play-by-play to get back into the 70s. Where Part of the problem is that the farther back you go, the more teams did not keep records of their play-by-play. And the way that we fill those holes is with videotape. And the farther back you go, the, l- the yeah. fewer videotapes <laughs> there are of the games that we need. Sure. I honestly don't know if we're going to be I'm, – I'm shocked we made it back to 81. I don't know if we're going to be able to go any farther than 81. And I'm pretty sure there's no way we can go any farther than 78. So 
forget how far you'd be able to go back. What would your gut tell you if you had the play-by-play of what some of those teams in the 70s would have produced in, 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 in a conclusion? Oh, I think that they would be fantastic. I mean, there's no question that um, this, those Steelers teams were phenomenal. There were Raiders teams also in that mid-70s, not just the one that actually won the Super Bowl, but other Raiders teams that were fantastic. Um, my guess is that the 1972 Dolphins would shock people by how high they were not. Yep, agreed. Right, because they played a remarkably easy schedule that year, yeah. probably easier even than the 1999 Rams, which currently have the easiest schedule. I have a historic, if I can find the workbook, I have a historic where we did estimates of DVOA going all the way back into the 60s. Um, that that would be fascinating. I mean, I, I, I the '72 Dolphins. I agree with you. Not only that, they had they had close games, and they they were certainly not. Uh, they were a good running team with Kick and Zonka and um, Mercury Morris. Uh, you know, what's uh, interesting when you go back there, especially if you look at just playoff numbers is, you know, your record didn't determine home field advantage. They did it on a rotating basis. The 72 Dolphins undefeated played the AFC championship game at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, um, which is which is crazy. Um, I can tell you, for example, just opening up here in the estimated numbers. Like the 73, 74, and 76 Steelers would probably come out in the top 10 to 15 defenses of all time. I think some people believe that the 76 Steelers, and they did not win the Super Bowl, uh, Bradshaw was injured for a big part of that year, may be the greatest defensive team ever assembled if the 85 Bears weren't. Yeah, and again, you know, my argument is for the 1991 Eagles. But if you look at the 76 Steelers, they had five shutouts and two games where they gave up three points in their final eight games of the season. It's amazing. Their final eight games of the season go zero 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 three sixteen three zero zero. I mean, different era, obviously, and you're able to essentially assault receivers before they even get into a pattern. But I remember it's one of the, 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 the that's the era that I first started to remember. And the, uh, there's a big argument that a lot of longtime football people make for the 76 Steelers, and they didn't win the Super Bowl. They lost the AFC title game. Uh, to the Raiders, who went on to to club Minnesota um, in the Super Bowl. Um, Washington's 91 team, dominant during the regular season, you know, shut out three of their first five opponents. The defense was awesome, ripping great, the whole thing. We know what it was. And they had a tough regular season schedule. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the postseason was a breeze, right? Atlanta-Detroit, before they got to Buffalo, was about as easy as it could have been back in that era. So 91, Washington has an average schedule for the season, okay. by our numbers. Uh, but yeah, Atlanta was eighth that year. Detroit was only 15th, despite being 12-4. and four. Yeah, They were a very lucky team that year. And then Buffalo was fourth. Was was fourth, and so, yeah, the so, top the top the top three teams that year were Washington, San Francisco, and New Orleans. And New Orleans and New Orleans, I think, lost to Atlanta 
in the in the first round of the playoffs, which is why Washington got Atlanta in the divisional round, not New Orleans, and that would have been probably a Bobby A. Bear, you know, um, New Orleans team uh, in '91. And I, I specifically recall, you know, as a fan of the team, I'd much rather play Atlanta than New Orleans. Um, which more, more importantly, Dome Patrol, right? That was the number two defense that year was New Orleans. They had a fantastic oh, defense. Oh, sure. Yeah, um, a, a, very good, uh, a very good defense uh, that year. Um, while I have you on the show, let's just real quickly talk about Washington this year. You know, there was a lot of expectation about what they could be defensively. Um, you know, some traditional statistical numbers like rush defense, they didn't turn out that badly. But, you know, you guys had them, I think, at 27th defensively DVOA. I think that's what I cited the other day when I pulled it up. Um, it, it, this this was not a good defensive football team, in your opinion, right? Right. It, they did very badly in our numbers on defense, no question about it. Um I'm opening it up now, but I think that you were accurate. I, I think that we were all surprised, given what we thought before this season. The fact that Washington end up higher in offense than defense was shocking. <laughs> uh, 21st in offense, 27th in defense. Um, there's so much talent here on defense that, especially, you know, that front four, uh, for them to be 27th in defense, uh, it really does show the fact that defense is so um, hard to predict and inconsistent compared to offense. But people talked about, you know, we knew after the improvement that Washington had in 2020 that they would regress towards the mean. But regress towards the mean means you get closer to being average. It doesn't mean you suck. Yeah. Um, Tell everybody who the the number one DVOA team in the league was this year? Shockingly, <laughs> it was a very, you know, close year. People talked all year about, you know, any team can win it. Um, it was hard to find teams that were consistent over the whole year. But the number one team ended up as the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. So when you see that, you know, when your numbers produce that, how often do you look at them and say, yeah, I just don't agree with it? I mean, I, you know, I know why they came out number one, and I do agree with it. They, they were really good this year. Uh, a lot of people criticize that they say, you know, such and such a team uh, beat up on bad teams. But that's generally how we identify Super Bowl champions, is their ability to beat up on bad teams. Games between good teams generally come out close. I mean, occasionally you have something like what Buffalo did to New England in the first round of the playoffs, which is like when one good team insanely destroys another good team. But that's rare. Normally, games between good teams end up close, and the way you see who the best teams are is by the way they handle the bad teams on their schedule, and Dallas really handled the bad teams on their schedule. Um you know, like I said, though, it was not a year. Dallas was not particularly strong compared to years past, the number one team of years past, especially if you take out that Week 18 game where Philadelphia was playing all back. Exactly. Like, Dallas would have still been number one without that game, but it would have been like a really – they would have been number one by a really tiny, itty-bitty margin over Buffalo and Tampa Bay. Um, I wanted- but it's interesting. I mean – 
Because the fact is that our top four teams did not make the Final Four. This is only the second time that none of our top four teams made the Final Four. Uh, right, but you, the Rams were five, and San Francisco was six, and Kansas City was seven. So you were close. Cincinnati's, right. you know, was seventeenth. What's the lowest DVOA team that for you guys that has ever made the Final Four? I'm not sure which is the the lowest. I have to look up here which is the lowest that ever made the Final. Four. What about the Super Bowl? But the lowest that ever made the Super Bowl. I can tell you that the lowest that ever made the Final Four was the 1995 Indianapolis Colts. Mm-hmm, with Harbaugh. That was the Jim Harbaugh yep. was the quarterback. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, the lowest that ever made the Super Bowl was the 2008 Arizona Cardinals. Got and it. they almost won it. Right. And um, the lowest team to win the Super Bowl was the 2007 Giants. The 2007 Giants. Got it. Um, you know, you, you brought something up. I'm just curious. So... Because I remember thinking about this after the last week. How do you differentiate Dallas's final eight, week 18 win over a Philadelphia team sitting everybody versus, you know, the week before where they're playing a team that cares about winning? Yeah, I mean, uh, for, the, for the full ratings that we do, I include every game and every play. Right. For the ratings that we put into our playoff odds simulator – I will make adjustments. So, for example, when I simulated the playoffs after the end of the regular season, I took out the last game of the season for Dallas because I felt like that really didn't count. And I took out the last game of the season for Cincinnati because they sat a bunch of people, too. So it's just trying to get, you know, you have to try to approximate to figure out what mattered and what didn't matter. But for the actual ratings, I use every game. I mean, that. The fact is, 91 Redskins would be higher if I adjusted for games where teams sat starters because they sat starters for most of their last game of the season and lost to uh, Philadelphia. Lost to Philadelphia by two points. Yeah, lost to your number one defense of all time, the 91 Eagles, um, and still scored scored 22 points against that defense. They they were up at with, ha- they were up at halftime with their offensive backup. Yeah, they were up at halftime with their starters and then sat them in the second half. Um, Lastly, for those, you know, and I think we're now in this era, certainly the last five years, you know, maybe longer than that, and, and you you probably argue longer than that, but I think for much of, like, my audience in, in recent years, the awareness of football outsiders and pro football focus, et cetera, has become much greater. And pro football focus, obviously, with a big brand, and football outsiders with a big brand. What's the difference between the two? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, I'll be honest, is that they're a much larger company than we are. Uh, and they do all that charting uh, and and scouting and the, the grades of players. We don't really grade players right. in that way. Exactly. Um, is that the biggest, is that the biggest you know, the, difference, is that you guys don't grade players? Yeah, that and the size of the company is definitely <laughs> right. the biggest difference. Um, don't you think... And it's always been, you know, uh, and I'm not calling this an expert opinion by any stretch of the imagination, but it's something that my my radio partner of many years, Chris Cooley, always said, that it's really hard to grade players in this particular sport if you're not exactly sure what their responsibilities are on a, on a given play. Do you agree with that? 
Oh, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, listen, there is some value to the pro football focus grades, and they've been shown to be consistent from year to year, especially at certain positions. Uh, and the positions where their grades are not as consistent from year to year tend to be the positions where other statistics are also not as consistent from year to year, like cornerbacks. Um, but I do agree that especially with uh, offensive linemen and especially with safeties, it can be very difficult to determine what a player's uh, responsibilities were on a play. That that being said, you can see when a guy gets beat. Of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, if it's a one-on-one block and the blocker gets beat, you know, that you can see. No, I think I think you nailed it. It's something that we've we've always talked about. It's like to me, the hardest you know would be, um, you know, essentially DBs because you just don't know the defenses or the specific responsibilities of coverage um, that they have. And I think offensive line is a difficult, you know, unless you're really sure that was you know outside zone and you understand the rules, et cetera. Um, and I'm sure there are more plays than not that they're now much more, um, you know, sort of accurate in assigning a grade to a specific play. But I think it's always been hard. Um, you can follow Aaron on Twitter at F-O underscore A-Shots. All right. That's A-S-C-H-A-T-Z. Or follow Football Outsiders on Twitter at F-B Outsiders. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. No problem, man. All right, that's it for the day. Uh, really enjoyed my conversations with Brad Edwards and Joe Jacoby and Aaron Schatz and remembering um, the 1991 team. I, there's so much more uh, that we could discuss about that specific team, but it would go on and on. And I, I thought it was interesting that Jake reminded all of us that this time next year, uh, January 31st, right, in uh, 2023, will be the 40-year anniversary of Washington's first Super Bowl victory. And that will, in so many ways, be even more special than this one. Not only because it was the first, but because of what was, I think, the greatest win in franchise history, which was the championship win over the Cowboys in January of 1983. Any player that played on that team will tell you the Super Bowl was anticlimactic. Beating the Cowboys in that NFC title game was truly the special moment of that season. And, of course, the Super Bowl win included the most iconic play in franchise history. Fourth and one, Riggins, uh, for the lead in the fourth quarter in Super Bowl 17. So, Uh, we've got that to look forward to, um, a year from now. Uh, all right. That's it for the day. Again, back tomorrow with Tommy. Joe Gibbs is finally smiling. Yeah. He's been more relaxed and enjoyed this Super Bowl more than any time I've seen him. Somebody asked him what he wanted to do. And he said he wanted to run in a marathon and build a house, win a Super Bowl. What else did he say? I don't know. You wonder how long that he's going to be in this.